Welcome to Scoreboard Cinema. I'm Jack Walsh and I'm joined by my co-host Connor Grandy. Um, this is Scoreboard Cinema. We talk about movies, sports, pop culture, and just a mix of things. And this is our first ever episode. So for today, we're going to be talking about the movie Saltburn, sort of taking the internet by storm as of late on TikTok and everywhere else. But we're also going to talk a little bit about the NFL playoffs. We're going to talk about our predictions for the AFC and NFC championship games. All right, so let's start off with Saltburn. This is the good, the bad, and the horny. This movie is very divisive among a lot of people. And you either love this movie or you hate it. And in the case of me and Connor, we both fucking hated this movie. <laughs> Not hate, but like, I don't think it's as great as people say it is. Um, so just a little brief synopsis about this. So the plot. So it's about a low class student named Oliver Quick. He's a student at Oxford University. Um, very smart, but very antisocial. He struggles to fit in with the student body during his tenure, but one day he befriends a student named Felix Catton, played by Jacob Elordi, by lending him his bike. And in spite of Felix's friends sort of being reprimanding him and being aggressive towards him, Felix still welcomes him to the friend group. After doing his semester together, Oliver opens up to him about his troubled past, his abusive and drug-using parents, and all the problems that forced him to get out of it. And it's here that we see Felix Catton's mansion of a house, Saltburn, and all the weird things that follow. Connor, what did you think about this movie? Yeah, so to me, I didn't really like this movie. And to really sum it up, I would say it's just a ripoff of The Talented Mr. Ripley, basically. It's like if you took all the best elements of The Talented Mr. Ripley and took them away, I mean... Uh, Jacob Elordi's playing Jude Law's character. He's a discount Dickie Greenlee, basically. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you got Barry Keegan, who's playing basically Ripley. But I, I thought Barry Keegan was the best part of this movie. Um, I agree that. So I really think he carries a lot of the movie. And a lot of the side characters are just not good. I mean, Jacob Elordi's probably the most mid actor I've seen in a long time. He's not bad. He's not great. He's painfully mid. So that's probably what I thought about it. If you want to dive a little bit more into what you thought was good and then we can move down to the bad and then eventually the horny, which is kind of <laughs> self-evident, but you want to start with the good? Um, I'll start with the good, but first I just want to give a little background to all the notable actors and actresses that have starred in this. So first, aforementioned Jacob Elordi. He plays Felix Catton. He's the object of desire. He's the heartthrob of horny TikTok teenagers and young adults. I don't think he's that attractive, but to each their own. Um, his famous roles before this included, he was a star on the HBO show Euphoria. Um, he was in a movie series called The Kissing Booth. Um, I've never heard of it, but yeah, it sounds it? popular. <laughs> and then um, he most recently also starred in the Sofia Coppola movie uh, Priscilla, The Life of Priscilla Presley, and he played Elvis. So he's sort of been a rising 
star, at least to the TV world. Um, Barry Keegan. So he hasn't exactly been a star, but he's sort of been featured in a lot of movies. Um, smaller parts to start, but he was in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Um, he was in Dunkirk. He played small parts in Chernobyl and The Batman. Last year, he won an Oscar for Supporting Actor for Banshees of Inisherin. And uh, the Oscar nominees actually came out two days ago, or three days ago, but I don't think a single nomination got put forth towards Saltburn, so... Yeah, I don't blame Yeah. They weren't exact, there wasn't much to work with. Um, by far the most famous actress in this entire movie is Rosamund Pike. She plays Jacob Elordi's mother, Lady Elspeth. Um, she's pretty much been a starring lady since the beginning. Her very first movie was the 2002 James Bond movie, Die Another Day. She started off as a Bond girl. Um, since then, she's steadily had other roles um, in Pride and Prejudice, Jack Reacher, I Care A Lot, and obviously her most famous performance that she did not get an Oscar for was playing Amy Dunn in the movie Gone Girl. Um, rounding out the characters, there's Carrie Mulligan. Uh, she's been a good supporting actress. Um, she was actually in Emerald Fennel, the director of this movie's first ever feature called Promising Young Woman. But she plays sort of a nobody in this movie. She plays a ginger-haired girl named poor old Pamela, <laughs> who the entire family hates, by the way. Um, but she's very, very small in this movie. And then there's Richard Grant, who plays the dad. I didn't know much about him, but apparently he's been in a lot of big movies. Dracula, Logan, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, just to name a few. And then there's Allison Oliver, who plays Venetia. We're gonna get up. We're gonna get to her scenes a little <laughs> bit later. And then uh, Archie McKedway, I believe is how you say it. Um, the best part of this. <laughs> he plays uh, Frame. What's it? I forget Farley. what. It's, Farley. 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 Yeah. Um, he was recently in the racing video game movie Gran Turismo. Oh yeah. Um, and he played a small part in Midsummer. But, Probably next De Niro, if I had to guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, um, with that out of the way, let's move on to the good. Um, the framing and cinematography. This movie is gorgeously filmed. Um, the opening scenes of when they're just in Oxford, and you get like these wide shots of all the buildings yeah. and the color scheme, and especially once they get to Saltburn... Like, all, all the technical, like, framing, uh, design, things like that, it's super, super beautiful. Um, I agree. I would say, yeah, the, the best shots and the best um, parts of this movie in terms of cine cinematography are definitely, like, the architecture and the location. Like, Oxford's a very cool location in itself. Um, I liked a lot of the shots, like when they were in the pubs and whatnot, the lighting in there was cool. And then definitely uh, when they're at Saltburn, those were the best shots of the movie, just like showcasing the location. And um, yeah, but besides that, I mean, obviously I think the cinematography was good, but I wouldn't say it was like anything special. It's definitely above average. That's fair. And I think it's kind of carried by the locations of the movie, kind of carry it. It's not bad, but I wouldn't say I was like... Super impressed, but I can see what you're saying about that. Um, along with the other goods, obviously Barry Keen, 
or Keegan, I thought that his performance was definitely the best part of it. Um, I don't think any performance in this movie is Oscar-worthy yeah. by any means. Um, and I don't think he was going to win anyways. But uh, for... I'm just gonna, we're just going to spoil it because this is the podcast review. But um, he's very good at playing a like seemingly innocent schoolboy, <laughs> antisocial, socially awkward. Um, and then he kills your whole family. Yeah, and, <laughs> and then he's like a super sinister, like he's been plotting this whole time, uh, secret psychopath. Yeah, um, he's been kind of, like, typecasted at this point, and he's still, I don't know how old he is, maybe late 20s, early 30s, I can't really even tell, the dude's kind of, like, an enigma, but... 31. Yeah, he's sort of getting typecasted, I know, I watched The Killing of a Sacred Deer a while back, and he p plays a similar role, but um, definitely more fucked up in that movie, he ends up, not to, well, definitely spoiling the movie, he ends up killing the whole family in the end. It's, I don't know what it is, but this dude, I don't even know if he's acting anymore. Like, <laughs> he's turning into this guy, and yeah, in the Joker. I haven't seen too much uh, Barry Keegan films, but he's playing the Joker and the Batman, and I actually, at first, I was very hesitant on that casting, but now I think he'll definitely fit that and have like a more sinister, wicked take on that, but... It's kind of weird to see how he's getting typecasted into such a specific role, but he's he's obviously very good at it, and in my opinion, he kind of carries this film along. So, for the rest of the good, I mean, I said the atmosphere of the movie. You sort of we sort of uh, bled into that with like framing and cinematography and whatnot, yeah. but I mean, it does give that sort of uh, like you said, talented Mister Ripley feel to it because mm -hmm. like the family starts dying slowly and um you sort of wonder like how like to what extent is this guy um like how sick is he actually and of course we don't really learn much about it until um he goes to see his parents much to his uh chagrin when uh felix takes him over to his parents and finds out that no he actually isn't a poor kid or even a kid of abusive parents in fact his parents are super nice but he's yeah. just this he has this warped perception of life that is so that is like totally sent him out of whack um and then <laughs> for the good i also said the slurp sound effect <laughs> um if you've seen the movie you know what i'm talking about but um i'll elaborate on that later we'll talk about you think that. that's good that's, I think it's just funny. Um, I think it's the craziest. Oh, okay. You know what? Here's another good one. Um, the audio in this movie. There are so many scenes and we'll, we'll talk about this more in the horny part of the, of the movie, but oh my God, they like those microphones could not have been clear. They, they get every sound in it. It's crazy. Got an AK audio. <laughs> um, okay, and now we're gonna go to the bad. Yeah, the, um, the the good part of this podcast is very short, unfortunately <laughs> for Saltburn. And actually, before we get into the bad, I want to know what's your take on. I know we both agree that this is like so similar to the talented Mr. Ripley. Do you think they were just trying to rip that off, or do you think there's like anything original? Original. 
original. I can't talk. Anything original about this movie? Well, okay, so I was going to talk about this a little later, but I I went into this movie not really knowing anything. I didn't know much about, like, the mystery. I mean, I knew about the disturbing scenes and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But for the first, like, I want to say hour of this movie... There's not even a mystery to it. No. Like, there's nothing to be, like, concerned about. It's literally just... Like, the first hour, it's just a gay movie, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I thought it was more more along the lines of, like, the movies that have come out, like... Call Me By Your Name, uh, Moonlight, Brokeback Mountain. I didn't really know there was a mystery involved with it. Um, whereas with Talented Mr. Ripley, I mean... That, start, that gets going 30 minutes into yeah, it, I think. You're wondering how, how is he going to get himself out of the situation that Ripley got himself in. But yeah, I agree. Talented Mr. Ripley definitely does a better job of establishing like tension, suspense, and uh, Saltburn, I didn't really feel any of that. I mean, obviously there is like some mystery and tension to it, but it was not effective whatsoever. Like they kind of built it up a little bit, but it really didn't lead to a good payoff, I thought. I think you'd agree with that. Probably. Yeah, that was the that was another one I was going to say, the payoff. Because, so personally, if you want to know my exact rating, I gave this movie a 4 out of 10. I don't think it was truly awful. But there is a moment in the film, once the bodies start dropping, and uh, you start wondering, like, is this just, like, bad luck of the family? Is is uh, Oliver, like, directly doing this himself? And you're sort of wondering where the movie's going to go with it. Um, but the thing is, like, the movie sort of drags on. Like, even after the family... Or, I shouldn't say the family, but, like, after uh, Felix dies, after he gets killed by drinking a drink that Oliver poisoned for him, you still have, like, 25 more minutes in the movie. And it's just, like, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, like, true, very true. it's just very lackluster. What do you think about Archie? Archie? Um, <laughs> or Farley, whatever his name is. <laughs> well, Archie's the actor. Dude. Yeah. But I think... <laughs> You know, never give him another role. I think this was his last chance at Hollywood, and he's going to Bollywood. Now. <laughs> no, so uh, he's like, he's very good at playing like an unlikable character. Now, whether or not he was acting, we can debate that too. But no, he definitely like. I will say this, given that he's not actually a member of. The family. I believe he's what, what, like their cousin or something. Yeah, he's their cousin. Okay, so like the fact that he lives with them, even though he's not actually like in their immediate family, he is like the most uptight, snobbish, um, bitch really in this movie. Which is like he he chastises um, Oliver for living with the family, even though he sort of is yeah. doing the exact same thing. I felt like he didn't even need to be in the movie. Like, he could have been in the scenes where they're at Oxford, like, as one of uh, Felix's friends, but they should have left him there. That dude did not need to come home with them. I felt like this is just a guy that might have been, like, begging for a role or something, or, like, yeah. a director's friend. This dude had no substantial role or meaning in the movie, and he was just kind of, like, 
taking up space, to be honest. The one scene I do, well, there's two, but the one scene that I actually did like with him is it's during a celebration. I don't know exactly what the occasion is, but it's when they're singing karaoke <laughs> in the ballroom. Yeah. And uh, Archie plays a song for him, which basically says, like, it's the equivalent of saying, like, oh, you're just living off the money of my parents and my family. And I thought that was actually a great scene. Um, yeah, and he brings it back on him, too. It applies for both of them. Yeah, and I think it's like a... But that's like a clever way of being a dick. That's not just yeah a way of being like, oh, you're lashing off my family. Fuck off. Like, it's it's actually... That's actually a clever writing. Like, that's, that's a scene that I actually liked in the movie. Um... Yeah. Yeah, besides that, he's just playing, like, a stereotypical, like, not even, like, a jock, but just, like, a bully, I guess. He doesn't really... They didn't put too much thought into his character, and I'd rather not see him ever again. He, he lost his chance in Hollywood. Um, Alright, moving on to another part of the bad. Speaking of karaoke and all the music, the needle drops in this movie <laughs> are so fucking bad. It's, like, kind of hilarious, the songs they choose to play. Like, they like they play Low by Flo Rida. Wait, so are like, you talking more about, like, the music choice? Or, like, yes, the way yes. it's mixed in? Well, that, that doesn't help it either. But, like, okay. the music in the movie, like, Low by Flo Rida or, like, the MGMT song. Oh, when the... just, There's so many montages in the movie, yeah. too. That was a common... Um, criticism that a lot of my friends said while I was watching it is like it's just so much like pointless it doesn't do anything it's like yeah, it's just a montage of them laying out in the grass yeah. touching each other's ass and stuff yeah I don't know yeah I, what is by the way what has this director done like she's done two movies she did Promising Young Woman uh, came out 2020 never saw it but I actually did want to watch it I think that might have came out either like right before the pandemic or shortly after because um okay, yes, I remember I remember seeing the trailer for it. Okay, yeah, so it was it was uh it came out on it was released in the Sundance Film Festival January twenty fifth of two thousand twenty, but then it was theatrically released on Christmas Day of twenty twenty. So I mean, it's just timing. She sort of got lost in the Lost for Timing. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard it's actually not a bad movie. It's a revenge flick starring Carrie Mulligan as well. Yeah. But I haven't watched it, so I can't really give too much of an opinion on I it. I guess the director didn't really like Carrie Mulligan that much <laughs> after that movie because she said, here, play one of the shittiest roles in my next movie. It's sort of like a reverse... Uh, it's like a reverse Christopher Nolan and Killian Murphy where he was playing all the small roles in like Inception <laughs> yeah. and Batman Begins. Yeah. And then he goes to Oppenheimer. Instead, she just gets demoted. <laughs> yeah, by the time... Uh, what's her name? Emerald, Emerald, Emerald Fennel. By the time she's on like, her fifth movie, Carrie Mulligan will be playing like someone that walks in the background of a shot or something. Stripper number two. Have, yeah, she won't even have any speaking roles anymore. And she's not even... like Carrie Mulligan is established, too. She's in... Uh, she was in Drive. She was in Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. with Also with uh, Rosamund Pike. Yeah. She was in The Great Gatsby, which my dad loves her performance as Daisy. Um, she was in a movie with Michael Fassbender called Shame. Like, she's been around the block. And for her to play, like, 
a character that has maybe 10 minutes of screen time. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, Do you have anything else for the bad? I know we talked about um, Farley, how it didn't really execute well. Oh, something I had is it's not really, um, yeah, not focused so much on having a payoff, but it seemed like their main focus to me was on shock factor. Yeah, I was gonna say I was gonna say that too. Uh, like the disturbing scenes that are just to be disturbing. Although I am gonna open up this topic. Actually, you know what? I'll I'll ask you the this opinion. Um, so I've been thinking about this, and when people talk about movies, like. What's the most common thing you hear when they talk about movies now? Like, what's the most common phrase? Like, praise or criticism, are you saying? Criticism. Um, too woke? Well, okay, so like, <laughs> so I was gonna say, like, what I thought was the most common phrases I hear are, um, they don't make movies like they used to, oh, okay. or nothing's original. Original, um, yeah, sure. So, and, you know, there's so many remakes or rehashes, and they're just trying to make money nowadays. Yeah. Um, so, my question to you is, is this movie, along with a bunch of other movies that have sort of come out this year, uh-huh. is this a response to audiences saying, like, oh, there's nothing original out there anymore, There's n- nobody's coming up with anything creative, and so, like... All these creators, whether it's Yorgos Lanthimos with Poor Things mm-hmm. or Everything Everywhere All at Once with the Daniels, do you think this is like a response by the film directors of today saying like, all right, you know what, fuck you, I'll make something creative, I'll make something original, and then see what you think about it? Um, what do you think about that? I, I don't think it is because my main takeaway is that this is really some, this director was someone who's clearly inspired by movies that came before it. And they're not really building upon that. They're kind of just taking the template of it and making it a little bit of their own. I think they saw the talented Mr. Ripley. They loved it. But in terms of making it maybe original, I don't I haven't seen the director's other movies. I don't know if she does a lot of this like weird, like shock scenes and whatnot. But really, I don't know. There's nothing it's like she saw the talented Mr. Ripley and said, I'm going to make it different by putting in, like, very graphic and odd, like, deviant sex scenes. But I don't think it's, like, a direct response to anyone demanding originality or anything. I don't know what you think about that, but... Um, I mean, I think that there's been sort of an uptick in surrealism lately. Because um, you can look at a guy like Yorgos Lanthimos, who... Mm-hmm. You know, he makes crazy wild movies like Dogtooth and The Killing of a Sacred Deer, (laughs) Poor Things, which came out this year. Very good movie, by the way. But, I mean, certainly, he's, like, he's not the first. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we've grown up on, like, David Lynch and (laughs) um, just a bunch of other surrealist filmmakers that have existed long before this movie came out. Yeah, but I wouldn't even say this is, like, a surrealist film. This is just, like... It's not, I don't know if edgy is the right word, but it's like, it's, it's a movie that's made for the TikTok generation. This is like one of those, I'm trying to think of other examples. I mean, it seems like Jacob Elordi, everything he stars in, is just gets popular off of TikTok, like most notably Euphoria. But to me, it seems like this director is trying to stand out, putting in these weird sex scenes, you know, the bathtub scene, 
the grave scene. And how I found out about this movie was not from like trailers or anything. It was from TikTok. People talking about, oh, don't watch the bathtub scene. Don't look up the grave scene. And I think this movie is perfect for like that TikTok generation, social media generation. Uh, just people are tuning in to see one scene, which is kind of messed up. They're not trying to like really care about the meaning or what the actual film is as a whole. They're just trying to get like a shock value or shock factor from the movie. They're tuning in for one thing. Um, that's what I think this really is. Um, one last thing for the bad. Um... I think all of the characters in this movie are a bunch of fucking idiots. I think they're yeah. all so stupid. And by the way, they're all assholes, too. And that includes the family and even Jacob Elordi. I don't really think... Like, the mom and dad are so neglectful. They have... Like... Their kids... Or their kid dies. And then they're like... The next day, they're like, oh... But we have to eat lunch, or we have to eat breakfast, and yeah. I'm like, you like, I get maybe you're in a traumatic shock, but like, <clears throat> dude, I can't believe the way these characters are written. <laughs> Even like with Jacob Elordi, I mean, we're gonna talk about the horny, but I mean, there's just so many things. Like, there's one scene, the scene where he's showing them, or or he's showing Oliver around the house, and he's mm -hmm. like, oh, that's the corner bathroom over there where I fingered my cousin. I'm like, all right, well. <laughs> There was no purpose in you writing that piece of dialogue, but go off, I guess. Um, do you yeah. have anything else to say for the bad? Um, I do not. We went over most of it, but yeah, I agree. The characters are very dumb, but I think that just is... I didn't really have as much... I mean, it, I don't like the characters mostly. I like Barry Keegan, but I think that's consistent with what the movie's trying to be is these are just like complete idiots and it's it's consistent with the theme i didn't really have any problems i don't like the characters i understand why they're dumb i understand the decisions they make are dumb and i think it's kind of like it's not a parody in a way but it's it i don't know how to describe it it's just the theme of the movie is just idiots kind of getting out not outsmarted but they got this oliver dude kind of just coming in and like plotting on this dumb family so I, I didn't really have any problems with the dumb decisions i think it was kind of necessary but then it does turn out that these people are really not good enough actors to pull it off i think that's more of the issue so. okay so with that out of the way let's move on to the last part um the part that you guys have probably been waiting to hear the horny <laughs> the whole movie. so i mean <clears throat> yeah that's why this movie's famous. That's why this movie was on TikTok. Mm -hmm. That's why the murder on the dance floor and the um, one, two, three, four song has just been blowing up all over the internet. Yeah. It's also, because of what, what other movie was that song in? Murder on the dance floor? Uh, I feel like that's definitely been in something. I, I honestly don't know. But, so, the, the thing that sort of registered in my mind why I don't like this movie the most. I know this isn't necessarily the horny, but this sort of ties in with it. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of realized, because the whole movie is, at least in the beginning, the first scene is Barry Keegan talking to somebody, we don't know who it is, but is talking about his love that he had for Felix. And 
the more I sort of grasped on it, because he's this whole object of desire, mm-hmm. and I realized, Felix is fucking boring. Yeah. Like, he is so boring. Um, this is obviously a gay movie, and the more I thought about it, the movie... Like, Jacob Elordi's character is written like how a hot, dumb, blonde character would have been written yeah. in, like, the 1980s. Like, like a bimbo. Yeah, like, she would have been played by Kate Capshaw or Denise Richards or, like, all those, or, like, uh, Jessica Alba. Like, yeah. yeah, like, all these actresses. Some, like, Baywatch-type character. Alexandra Daddario. Great, <laughs> yeah. great choice. But, like... Great scene in True Detective. <laughs> <laughs> no. Like, seriously, Jacob Elordi, like, okay, I, I sort of shit on his performance, but I will say... There's not much for him to do. He's very, very badly written. Yeah. He is just like... It's just like, oh, there's so many of these montages where they're at the bars or they're at a party. He's like, oh, I'm tall and I'm hot and I have charisma with girls and uh, very key and doesn't. Mm-hmm. But that's like all he does. All he does is look good and jack off in a bathtub. So yeah, he doesn't have any substance to him. He's just like a fucking cutout or like a... He's just a symbol for, like, someone that... He's trying to come off as someone that's cool, but he has no substance to him. And, yeah, they gave Jacob Elordi basically nothing to cook with, but even if they did, I don't think he can cook to begin with, so... Well, and the thing is, too, like, for a romance movie... I know this isn't exactly a romance movie, but, like, in order for me to like a romance movie, I have to care about both of the characters... Mm-hmm. And I don't give a shit about Jacob Elordi. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Like, in the beginning, there's some mystery when you see him. Because, like, obviously, it's told from uh, Oliver's perspective. But he, when you first meet him, you're like, this guy is so charismatic. This guy, he can talk with any girl. Like, how does he do it? What does he like? And then you're, when you go to Saltburn, you're like, oh, maybe it's going to be more mysterious. But then it doesn't really pay off or pan out that way. So, yeah. I don't know. Jacob Elordi, like, maybe you're a good actor. I don't know. But this movie certainly isn't going to get you any big-time A-list roles. Did you see him in Euphoria? Have I haven't him? seen him in Euphoria. I have been meaning to check it out, but, I mean, that's another of the... I mean, Jesus, we could do a good, the bad, the horny on Euphoria, yeah. too, honestly. But, yeah, I don't know what his... Obviously, he's known for being the good-looking guy, and, like, who would you even, like, compare him to in terms of, like... To a tall... Like, if I'm talking about, like, tall men that... Like, who who would have played a similar role to what Jacob Elordi's doing now, like, back in the 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Because uh, I think of him as, like, if Brad Pitt, like, what he was originally as, like, this heartthrob, but obviously Brad Pitt went on to be... One of the greatest actors of this generation. Can Jacob Elordi, like, do something like that? Well, okay, so, I mean, this guy wasn't cast as, like, a heartthrob, but, like, almost ten years ago was when, like, Adam Driver was getting his start, and he was, like, he's, like, a tall, people think he's good-looking, but he doesn't play, like, those heartthrob roles, to your point. Mm -hmm. I would say, like, I guess the most... Like, the best comparison would probably have to be somebody from the 80s when they made all those teen comedy movies. So... Yeah, okay. I don't know, maybe, like... Maybe, like, the Charlie Sheen movies back in the day. Um, 
or something along those lines. The movies that like Robert Downey Jr. or uh, Rob Lowe used to be. Maybe Keanu Reeves back in the day would have done something like this. Okay. But yeah, I want to see if this dude Jacob Elordi can like evolve into something else because I haven't seen much of him. I've seen clips from Euphoria, and he it looked like he was playing a pretty similar role to what he's doing in Saltburn. I want to see if he can evolve into something like, I guess, is Timothy Chalamet like maybe? I think he's too big and too much bad. Like he's, because he was never a television actor. I don't think. No, he but was, like Timothy Chalamet, he's. I'm not a huge fan of him, but he can, like, do that heartthrob role, but he can also do, like, serious roles, and I'm not a big fan of his serious stuff, but obviously people are, he's getting casted into Dune, and I wouldn't say Wonka's serious, but he's getting big roles. Can Jacob Elordi do something like that? Can we see Jacob Elordi in a, in a, I don't know, Nolan film? I mean, I've, I've seen, I've seen it happen this year, even, Mm -hmm. um, Speaking of Oscars, shout out to Zac Efron. Zac Efron just perf- just turned in probably the performance of his life in The Iron Claw. He plays this big, serious wrestler guy. It's a very tragic story about a family and all their most of their kids get lost to death or suicide or whatnot. But like, if you told me fucking ten years ago yeah. that the guy from High School Musical <laughs> one, two, and three is gonna be Worthy of an Oscar nomination. I mean, holy shit, I would have <laughs> laughed in your face. Yeah. Um, even like, and even before that, he was in, he played Ted Bundy in a Netflix mm-hmm. movie. He was very good in that. So yeah. I've seen it happen. And yeah. I think Jacob Elordi, even like in Euphoria, like I know that's, it's sort of marketed as like a teen show, but that's still like, it's a serious, and that's a top tier in terms of popularity, like that's yeah. a top tier show. Yeah, it's an HBO show, so it's it's definitely some prestige television there. But um, yeah, I think it might be a little bit too early to have an evaluation on Jacob Elordi because, like you said, he's been in what the Kissing Booth, whatever that is. Priscilla. Yeah. So I I haven't seen that. I don't even know if that's out yet. But it, it we might have to see another couple of years before Jacob Elordi's evolving, or if he can evolve, I guess is what we're looking at but in terms of back to like the horny how would you rank the scenes like the the messed up scenes like okay the grave scene bathtub the vampire scene like how would you rank it from most fucked up or least fucked up to most fucked up okay so um because obviously the 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 ones that were dominating tiktok was that bathtub scene and the grave scene so i mean the grave dry humping has to be the most disturbing. Like, okay. I don't care. Like, I'm not gonna go out of my way and say like, oh, this movie glorifies grave fucking, but like, it's so, like, it's so unnecessary <laughs> yeah. in the context of that movie. Yeah, like, what was the point of that? I, I like, really... Did they just say Barry... I, I think I read something, actually, that Barry Keegan just told the director, like, let me cook. And I, I think he just went out there and did that, and they, like, maybe forgot to chop it out of the movie or something. We'll get into the <laughs> let him cook a little bit later, but, yeah, um, that's gotta be number one, just because, like... It's so... The thing with that one, too, is I think it's the longest yeah, out of those four scenes. Yeah. 
So like it, it's literally just like a couple minutes of Barry Keegan bare ass, <laughs> like thrusting out into it. I like really, like you you don't want to look at the screen. I was looking at like a point on the wall or something <laughs> that entire time. So that's number one. Um, number two for me probably is uh you know. <sighs> I have to go with the scene with Venetia. So Oh yeah. That's my number one. That scene's Okay. That's so nasty. And so, that did not need to be in there. Yeah, so by the way, we had a while we were watching the movie, um I, I didn't watch it with Connor, but I was watching it with um a bunch of my friends. We legitimately thought after this scene, we thought he was going to try and fuck the entire family. <laughs> like Fuck the mom, fuck Jacob Elordi, like, cause by this point, we'll talk about another scene later, but, um, <coughs> he literally just goes up to this girl, who by the way, like, it's weird, cause she sort of like stalks him early in the movie. Yeah. She sort of like leads him on. Yeah, she's just like out the window, just like seductively walking around or whatnot. And then, yeah, just all of a sudden, uh... She, like, Barry Keegan walks over to her in his bathrobe. He just sees her outside, sitting outside for yeah. God knows why. Yeah, why is she out there? I, it's, I don't know. It's the middle of the night. I think it might have even been, like, raining or, like, misting out. It was foggy for sure. Yeah, I don't know why she's out there. But she is, like, uh, I don't know. She just sort of waits around and then all of a sudden he's like all right i'm gonna seduce her yeah and then of course she gets on her period and then he just keeps slurping on it dude it's yeah. like kind of crazy i and then the, like the i'm a vampire line yeah. just really <laughs> accentuates it i'm like holy fuck by this point <laughs> you know like he's a complete <laughs> fucking psycho he has no redeeming qualities. Yeah. And it's just, it's going to be a crazy rest of the movie from here on out. Yeah, it um, can't really get worse from that. And yeah, they, they cooked up one of the most despicable scenes I've ever seen in a movie. I'm going to be honest. And then this one, I was sort of alternating between the I'm a Vampire scene, but also there's a scene with Farley. Oh, yeah. Where he... That was he, just unnecessary. Well... Because, like, it's so odd because he, it's gross because he's telling him, like, he's like, are you going to obey yourself? Or are you going to behave? Or some shit like that. Yeah. He talks to him like a fucking dog. Wait, so why did, I didn't understand why Farley was, like, letting, I, I don't know what exactly was going on. Like, was he, some sort of sexual act was occurring. Why was Farley letting him do that to him? Uh, is, was Farley th- gay too, or like? I uh, no, I think he was scared. To be honest, I really think he was like, "Holy shit, this guy's a psychopath," and um, yeah. I mean, if he if he is in fact gay, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. No, but I yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I just I don't know. That's like a very. It like I said, it's also a very tense and very awkward scene. It's very quiet. Um, 
to add it up, he spits on his hand just to yeah. get it going a little yeah. more. I'm like, all right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's probably my ranking. And then an honorable mention uh, will go to at the end when he fucking, he fucking like rips the oxygen tank off of Rosamund Pike's throat. And then for some, like, by the way, like, a question for that. Is there, like, no nurses in that entire hospital? Because, yeah, like, there's supposed to be, like, oxygen detectors and, like, heart rate monitors. I don't think they were in a hospital, though. They were in their mansion, I think. It was, okay, like, some, like, makeshift, like, hospital room in their mansion. So it was probably, like, the butlers were taking care of her. I mean, either way, though, like, you should at least have somebody monitoring it who's not... Yeah, Oliver, who has no... By the way, at that point, hadn't seen her in, like, years. And also, like, he doesn't know shit about being a doctor. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that that whole scene is fucking weird. But then when he cuddles with her dead corpse, I'm just like... But, like, honestly, by that point, I wasn't even disturbed. I was like, all right, that's just... That's just business as fucking usual. But, um... <laughs> yeah, that's expected. Yeah, that would probably be... Um... An honorable mention. And then, obviously, four, four is probably the bathtub scene. I mean, yeah, it's... It's, just, it's it's horny, but, like... I'll be honest, like, I'm sure... I'll be honest, I'm sure there's people in the world who have done shit like that. Oh, yeah. I'm not even, like... So... Out of all the weird scenes, that was, like, the least out there scene. No, I'm sure people have done that before. Yeah. It's, <laughs> they like, shouldn't have done it. No, I mean... Yeah. It's just, like, it's freaky. It was just, like, it was weird, and but it was only really gross, like, when they zoomed in on it in the slurp sound. Yeah. I would say. The other ones are just, like, like, why is this in a motion picture? Like, are, <laughs> what is, what in the dark web are we watching right now? Like, this is just bad news. Okay, so, we're moving on to the Scoreboard Cinema Awards, the superlatives. Um, first one I want to give out is the Indy and Willie Award for Most Unnecessary Relationship in the Movie. Um, there's a lot of relationships in this movie, a lot of unnecessary yeah. fucks and hooks up. You hookups. could choose from a lot of things. <laughs> but, I think I would have to give it to Venetia and Oliver. I just can't. Okay. Like, I cannot stand, like... Because their whole, the only scene that they are in together is where, like I said, he's slurping out her period blood. (laughs) And, I don't know, I guess he thinks it's, like, hot that he's doing that, but... Yeah, he's a vampire, dude. Personally, I would have just freaked the fuck out. I don't know. Yeah. That's just me. Um, What about you? What do you think is... Yeah, I was was debating that one, too, but I... I came to the decision about Oliver and Farley. Because I could kind of okay. see... If you want to call that a relationship. I mean, Farley's pretty much unnecessary as a character. Yeah. So that makes sense. The Oliver and Venetia one is definitely unnecessary. But I saw it coming, kind of. Um, the one with Oliver and Farley, I didn't see coming. And that was just like... It was, I don't know, a minute-long, two-minute-long scene that they never really built upon anything. Like, there was no lead-up to that, really. At least I felt like that. And there was nothing that came after it. Like, why was that scene in the movie? I don't understand. 
I don't understand the Oliver and Venetia one, but at least they built up to something happening between them. This one just popped up, up on the screen, and I couldn't look at the screen for two minutes because of it. So I don't know. I thought that was completely unnecessary. So if you want to go to the next one, we did um, the Russell Wilson Award for who let them cook in this particular scene. And we probably have the same one for this. I put Oliver having sex with Felix's grave. Did you put yeah, that too? Yeah, I put that okay, too. Okay, yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure I read something like before I even saw the movie that this was the actor Barry Keegan's idea. I don't think this was something in the script. I think they just had some extra time on set, if I'm not mistaken. And he just said, put, put a camera on me and let me cook on this grave. And I don't know what this man was cooking, but it wasn't good. He burned it, whatever he was cooking. And um, he should never cook again. I don't think. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I mean, I understand that the movie is clearly trying to show us that Oliver is depraved and twisted and uh, a psychopath. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that there was literally two previous scenes of him doing morally bankrupt shit before this. There was the aforementioned Venetia and Oliver oral sex scene. And then there was also the scene where he's just drinking, slurping the cum out of the bathtub. So, I mean, I don't know, Emerald Fennel, maybe you need to find God. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't maybe know. Maybe you need to sit down with Kanye West and find God. Today. I mean, this is like, uh, I don't know. This is like a fucking fourth and 30 and Russell Wilson is check in on the play and then he fucking audibles to halfback dive or something <laughs> like that. Probably fullback dive. Or, or quarterback sneak or tush push or something yeah. like that. Where just like, what idea did you have in your head for this shit? That's I don't even, I don't even put the blame on the director. I mean, obviously I do for having the director should not have put this scene in the movie, but at least from what I was reading, this was not in the script. So it, I'll put 50, 50 on Barry and, uh, Emerald or whatever her name is for including this in the movie because the yeah this is just there's no meaning or really value taken from this scene so they're they're just cooking up two minutes of my life I'll never get back that's really what they cooked um, we have the Shannon Sharp nightcap ward for most out of pocket scene in the movie um, I feel like personally. This is a no-brainer for me, and it has to be the scene with Farley and Oliver. Cause, okay. So he's trying to scare him, but he's also trying to fuck him. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I'm sort of wondering, like, what tactic is this? I get he's, try- he's trying to get him to be obedient, but I can't quite understand. I feel like it would be just as easy to, like, threaten him or get him out of there i i know actually later on in the movie he actually does frame him for stealing something out of their house and yeah he gets excommunicated from the saltburn mansion but they should have they should have executed him too on his way out (laughs) but like i just think there could have been a much more disturbing way and that could have actually been a scene where we could have wondered and seen the more vicious side of Oliver like if they wake up the next morning and 
his body is just like flayed on the mansion floor or something like that. And you're like, oh, who the fuck did that? Then you could at least be like, oh, this guy's a psychopath. This mm-hmm. is weird, but it sort of shows that he's a psychopath. I didn't need another gratuitous sex scene. I've had, yeah. I saw way too many of them in this movie alone. Yeah. So uh, for my pick, I put uh, the vampire scene. Because I already talked about Oliver and Farley. I don't want to talk about that anymore. <laughs> I've put too much thought into it. But definitely the vampire scene. That was probably honestly one of the grossest scenes I've ever seen in a movie. And um, yeah, that that was that was another scene where they might have let him cook, and he he cooked up a disaster. I don't know what that was. I don't want to see anything like it ever again. I gave an honorable mention to the bathtub scene because he might have been. That might be another scene where they let Barry cook. I mean, might these three fucked up scenes might not have been in the script. Honestly, this guy might be so fucked up from playing the Joker that he's turning into the Joker. So, I mean, out-of-pocket scene is every other scene in the movie, but I'll, I definitely have to cap it off with the, the vampire scene. Um, moving on, would this movie be better with Casey Affleck? <laughs> I, I said probably not. I don't see how he fits into it. Uh, what did you say for this? Um, I, would say, I would say yes, because that's just... He's a great actor, but um, yeah, who would he play? Yeah, that's that was the that was the pivotal question is because like there's not really anything he could have played. The most he probably uh, could have ended up doing would be like maybe he could have been like a one of the professors at Oxford oh, okay. in the beginning. That's such a minor role, though. Does that really make it better? Uh, I mean, does that raise it from what what you have at two and a half stars? Or two stars? Two stars. Does that does that actually raise it that much or No, but I mean just by like I mean he he's like a he'll just appear in movies. Um and honestly like every time I see him, like when I saw him in Oppenheimer or something yeah. like that, I was like, Oh that's a pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah he's <laughs> one of the GOAT supporting characters right now. Or supporting actors I should say. So I I would have loved for him to pop up. Um, I don't know what he would have done. Yeah, he could have played Farley. <laughs> I'm kidding, but I don't know. I I, I mean, they, to make this movie like better, they would have needed to replace one of the main cast. Keep Barry, Keegan. If they could have replaced Jacob Elordi with somebody, I don't know who they could have done it with. But to really make it substantially better, I think they need to change one of the main guys. Farley... Um, Jacob Elordi, or maybe one of Jacob Elordi's parents in the movie, but I don't think Casey Affleck is in the proper age range to portray either of those parents. So I don't, I don't know. I don't really see him fitting into this one. This doesn't strike me as a Casey Affleck picture. I don't know. Um, we have the Shea Wiggum Award for that guy. Um... Honestly, there's not a whole lot of nominees. There's not a whole lot of actors, or, like, established actors, I should say, that are in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, The conclusion I got to was actually Richard Grant, who, like I said, plays the dad. But that's just because he's been... He has been acting the longest, and he's been, like I said, he's been in movies like Dracula and other supporting roles. Did he play Dracula? Uh, No, he played Renfield, who was... Oh, okay, yeah. That was, like, his... 
not his understudy, but he was the he's the guy who gets like hypnotized by Dracula, played by Gary Oldman. Yeah, maybe that's where they got some inspiration for that vampire scene. Maybe Richard Richard Grant, you said? Yeah, Richard E. Grant. was spitting some, like, vampire stuff on the set, and they're like, oh, yeah, we'll put that into the movie. I don't know. Yeah, he looked familiar, but I didn't know where to place him. But, yeah, like you said, there's not really a lot to choose from in this movie, and I ultimately chose Carrie Mulligan just because I recognized her from Drive which I've seen a while back. And she was like, um, Ryan Gosling's like love interest right in there, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was looking through the cast for a while. I'm like, eh, none of these people are like really established actors. At least the younger guys aren't. So I was looking at the older folks, Richard Grant, I wasn't too familiar with. Um, what's her name? Rosamund Pike. Is She's not really a that guy or a that girl. Like she's a big actress. So, I mean, Carrie Mulligan might be a big actress, but she was, like, really the only one that applied for me, I thought. There wasn't a lot to choose from, so. Um, I have the Steve Carell Award for Were They Really Acting? And my winner for that is Archie McKedway, McDequay. Yeah. I don't know how to say his name. Um, he just seems like a prick in real life. He seems like sort of an uptight douchebag. He's pro- Maybe he's nice, but... He's just, like, he's such an asshole in this yeah. movie, and he plays it well to his credit. Yeah, I chose Barry Keegan. I, I feel like I've been watching a little bit more of his filmography lately, and this dude, I don't think he's really acting anymore. I think he's turning into, like, this just absolute menace to society <laughs> that's a little bit mentally insane. And I think after he's done with the Batman trilogy... I think this dude might be going to Arkham Asylum in real life because I think this might be his Heath Ledger role where it it has a bad impact on his life. This dude's out of his mind. He's obviously a great actor in my opinion, but I think he's getting more and more strange with each role. And The Killing of a Sacred Deer, I don't remember the exact year on that. Maybe 2017. Yeah, that that was... I don't know. He, He keeps playing... A similar role within that little niche of just being this like seemingly innocent but he's just sinister and he has some shit up his sleeve so I don't think the dude's really acting anymore <laughs> which is a good thing and a bad thing for him but yeah um we have the Skip Bayless award for hottest take um is this the worst script in movie history <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, seriously, because the, like, this movie doesn't really have a genre. Mm. You sort of think it was a thriller just by, like, the plot synopsis. Yeah. But there's no moments, except the only <clears throat> scenes of tension are, like, the sexual tension that are felt between the characters. But there's no scene where it's, like, there's no mystery yeah. to who dies or who gets killed. Even when they say, um, when they reveal that he's, like, the that Oliver's the guy who was doing the killing, I feel like that doesn't even feel like a twist because I feel like yeah, we were not. supposed to know it. It's not. Yeah, what would you categorize it under for genre? If you had to pick, like, one. It's sort of been characterized as, like, a dark comedy. Yeah, like that's a black what I was comedy, But I don't know. Like, I don't think it... I didn't even think it was that funny. I thought it was, like... No, it's not. Like, the funny, the parts I was laughing at was just because the dialogue was ridiculous, or 
there was just scenes that were so gratuitous and unnecessary that I was like, holy shit, how did this ever get it through the editing room? Yeah. Yeah, on Letterboxd, they actually have it for three genres. They have it as a comedy, a drama, and then a thriller. So I could see the drama, I guess, but like the only time, yeah, where I felt any tension for even a little bit was like when Oliver and Felix were arguing on the way back from their ride home from their parents' house. Mm -hmm. But like other than that, there's not really... I mean, I guess there's a scene where he's going to get banished from the Saltburn mansion after his party because they find out that he's a fraud. But I don't know. It's really like... Th that's probably my biggest issue with the film is it just... It can't decide what it wants to be. It doesn't... Like the first, yeah. like I said, the first hour, it's like a romance movie. And then it's like a quasi-thriller, but it also still has those montages and scenes of like... Like Low some like coming of age movie or something yeah. thrown in there. I like, think yeah. here's the thing. Here's what I'll say. The I kind of wish that Jacob Velorde wasn't casted in this movie because I feel like the fact that he was in that and the director and writer knew the kind of stuff that he had been in, like the kissing booth and like Euphoria. So they sort of made it out to be this like semi-teenage movie. Mm -hmm. I wish they had gotten a lot, like, more serious with it. Maybe not more dark, but, like, more serious with it. Definitely. And I think, like, the problem is, yeah, when there's scenes where it's, like, MGMT's playing in the background and they're lying around in the grass and then they're having graphic sex with each other. I feel like <laughs> the, they just, like, the script didn't even know what kind of movie it was. Yeah. So, yeah. Who do you think's, like, the intended audience for this? I think it's probably, probably like the Jacob Lordy fan base. If yeah. I'm being honest, TikTok. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's weird though because it reached to so many people. I think this was like the fourth or not. It was like the fifth or sixth most watched movie this year. Yeah, it's crazy, and I think it really is stemming from like how popular it got off TikTok because people were like, "Oh my gosh, I need to see this scene." I need to see the bathtub scene. I need to see what it's about. Everyone else is watching it. So to me, I think like, I don't know if this movie was like made to like actually have like a meaning or made to say something. I think it was meant like as a viral marketing scheme in a way. Like this movie is perfect for TikTok because you can, you can hype up those scenes on TikTok. Like, was the director of this movie or the marketing team having TikTok accounts like create um like hype for specific scenes or something? Like, I don't know. That could be my hot take. I didn't really have a specific hot take on the movie, but I said um TikTok falling in love with Jacob Alordi for just being a mid actor. Okay. That that's that's definitely a hot take that TikTok has. And I mean it's typically girls. I haven't really seen many guys uh rave or praise Jacob Elordi so no that's fair um last award this is the Layla award for best needle drop in the movie I mean there's like a lot of them like I said are bad but I liked when they played it's called perfect um that's the dance club scene when Oliver throws his going away party or not going away party but like 
this the party before he's supposed to leave the Saltburn Mansion. That's probably the best one they had. Uh, Everything else is like pretty corny. If I, I didn't, say I so didn't even remember that like music. I don't know what that was. was that I'll like play. I'll play song? it for you after. Okay, I picked the murder on the dance floor at the end of the movie just because that song's like all over the internet right now and it got stuck in my head and. I don't know. I thought it was fine. I mean, it's definitely going to be, like, an iconic, like, song tied in with a movie to me. I think it'll be synonymous with this movie. So, I mean, that one stood out to me. The MGMT one was fine, but it was in a scene that was a little bit unnecessary. So, in terms of, like, why is there a montage of people laying out on grass right now? But, yeah, I don't know. Not Nothing really stuck out to me, but Murder on the Dance Floor is a catchy song, so I chose it. Okay. Um, yeah, and that concludes our superlatives for Saltburn. Um, we're going to have our guest speaker on in the next segment, so stay tuned. Here's our next segment. Um, so this is our guest speaker, Sawyer. So um, contrary to our opinions... He thought this was a good movie, so we're just going to do a sort of debate, argument, see what he has to say about the movie and why he likes it, and talk about it. So, with that out of the way, Sawyer, what did you like about Saltburn? Um, so my, the, the number one thing I liked about the movie was how it was shot. I thought uh, cinematically it was done very well. I thought that all the locations and the placement of different characters and um, just little background things that you could miss if it was just right out of the corner of your eye. I thought those were done extremely well. Mm -hmm. I think that the ultimate twist about Oliver's uh, entire character being a lie, um, there was a lot of times earlier in the movie where it hinted at like, oh, maybe something else could be going on or, oh, well, never mind. This guy's telling the complete truth and his life at home sucks. But going to his parents' house and then finding out that everything was just a big lie and going back through everything else and finding out that it was all planned so that um, uh, Barry's character could just become a part of um, Valority's family's life and just kind of replace them. Um, I think that that twist was done very well. I think that the family's characters as a whole um, were okay. I didn't think that they had like a lot of good development or anything throughout the movie. I thought that they were just kind of there to push the story forward. Um, and then I did like the soundtrack for the movie. Okay. So those are the main three things that I liked about it. That's fair. And you touched upon like when they went back to Oliver's house, him and mm -hmm. Felix went back to meet his parents. And I actually thought I was getting excited for that scene. Like, I was like, oh, shit's about to hit the fan. But I didn't see, like, a payoff. I mean, not, payoff might not be the best word. But, like, execution. I felt like that scene kind of came and went. Like, they didn't, like, stay enough on that scene for as long as I thought they should have. I thought there should have been a little bit more dialogue. I was kind of disappointed by how it, like, unraveled. I thought there was going to be more of, like... I wish they built up, like, the awkwardness of the scene and, like, a little bit more tension. And I wanted to hear more about, like, what his parents had to say and, like, how he was going to weasel his way out of that or maybe convince them uh, of something. Because, obviously, he's, like, sort of like a con artist. I wanted to see about how he would more navigate that. And I felt like they kind of just breezed past that scene in a way. 
I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that they definitely could have spent more time developing like his relationship with his parents, mm-hmm. but I think there's also a part of that that's expanding on that disconnection that he has with his real life by not staying with the family, by not showing them like eating dinner or um, yeah, okay. with Felix talking with his parents and actually getting to know um, like Oliver's true self. Mm-hmm. I think that limiting that time helps that part of the story, but I think that there definitely could have been a little more detail going into that. Yeah, that's fair. I agree with that. Um, And we also agreed with you about, like, the framing of the movie. We thought, like, it's a beautiful movie throughout the entirety of it, Um, especially, like, the opening scenes at Oxford and the Saltburn mansion shots. Um, Probably where I disagreed with you most was... You said the family was okay. I fucking hated them. I thought they were all pieces of shit. Like, the dad... Like, the, the dad and the mom are, like, totally oblivious to what's going on. Like, they had no idea what they are. They're just the textbook definition of low maintenance. Um, they're just poor with their... Like, poor with being a family to begin with. After Jacob Elordi dies, they're just like... Oh, we must get supper, or whatever. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Like, just, your son died. Get him out of the maze. Fucking, like, <laughs> do something. They don't even cry. They don't even, like, do anything. They just sit at, like, a dinner table and just, like, freeze. Um, I also think the dialogue in this movie with the family members is, like, awful. I, th- I think they're so stupid, like, the family, and, uh, especially, like, whenever Jacob Elordi speaks, it seems like something, that, like, the, the words that come out of his mouth are so stupid, or, like, they have to have sex in them, or, like, I mentioned it with Connor, but there's one where he's, like, when he's showing him around the room, he's, like, oh, over here is where I fingered my first cousin, I'm, like, why, like, why did I need to hear that? I don't know. Are you just trying to be, like, I get it, you're British. You're the royal family. You guys like incest. <laughs> I don't know if they all liked it. I think it was just a select few. No, but, like, it's, <laughs> it's, that, that part was weird to me. I just couldn't get behind it. I think the part, like, that's, like, the one thing in terms of your, like, critiques that I maybe, like, I can see what you're saying, but that I didn't find as big of a problem, like, the family's reaction to everything happening, like, their son dying, I think they were just in, like, shock, and, like, I I don't think their acting or their portrayal was anything, like, bad, um, I think it was also kind of consistent with the theme of the movie. Just, like, the, the characters were out there to begin with. The movie's out there. The themes are out there. So I didn't really see a huge issue with any reaction. The only issue I have is, like, Farley, get out of Hollywood, please. I do not like that actor. And um, Archie? Yeah, Archie. I'm going to have to agree with you with that. I, I don't really like... I, I don't like his acting. <laughs> yeah, not not against him as a person, but I just don't like the way that he acts in movies. Um, so I asked Connor this question too, but I'm I'm curious about what you have to say about this. So I was mentioning like 
in an age where like every movie that's hyped up, especially coming out next year, everything that's hyped up seems to be a remake or a sequel or some sort of continuation or a spinoff or something like that. Um, and lately there's been so many movies like Saltburn or Poor Things or Everything Everywhere All at Once, all these movies that are like completely, like some are absurd, but like all of them are different, like different from like things that I've seen. And we've talked about how Saltburn might be based on things like The Talented Mr. Ripley or A Clockwork Orange was another one that the director came about. How is The Clockwork Orange? Just like the weirdness and sadisticness of the character. I haven't seen it, but I don't, I don't, Um, I can't see how that's, I think the director is just spewing nonsense, dude. But my question to you is with like all these weird (laughs) and um, unorthodox movies that have been coming out, do you think this is a response to, like, a response of the filmmakers when they hear audience members like us say, nothing's original anymore, everything's a remake, um, creativity has run dry in Hollywood? What do you think of that? I, I would have to agree with you on the idea that, like, a lot of these movies that are coming out now are, they're just bad. They're just bad movies. It's a remake, or it's a retelling, or it's an adaptation, or or it's something. And there's not a lot of like original screenplays or original like plot lines, like really anywhere. And there's a there's definitely a place for inspiration or um, just having a few pieces here and there that you might pull from other media. Like I know you guys talked about talented Mr. Ripley or. Like, I was even thinking Shades of Parasite in this movie, okay. where it's just no, that's fair becoming too. something that you're not. And then with Saltburn, I felt like there was just a lot of having that disconnection between who you are, what society thinks you are, and just, like, being disconnected from everything. Um, but again, with all these movies that are coming out, there's a lot of good artistic movies coming out that feel like the directors and everyone that's part of the crew is really passionate about but then you'll get something like like a new Godzilla movie that's just like here to make money and it's not really any good and there's no plot and there's no real characters but they make sure to get all the big name actors mm-hmm. and here uh, like the actors in Saltburn they're popular they're not like the best actors in the world but I think that they fit the bill for the characters they're playing um, or even like oh, I'm trying to think of uh, recent movies that have come out I, I know I just mentioned Godzilla but um, like the Warner Brothers ones I don't think are very good but if you're going to come straight from Japan and make a movie that you actually care about the response is going to be good for it and I think that a lot of movies should take inspiration from having creativity and originalness be their their main like defining factor instead of just being another movie that has to get made or is a part of a series or oh you have to watch the Disney show to be able to watch the Star Wars movie or you have to watch this uh, this HBO show to watch this other movie and it's it's I like being able to watch a movie as a standalone thing a standalone time a standalone experience instead of having to go through eight other things to be able to enjoy something else. I think Avengers, like, 
fuck that over, like Marvel yeah, especially. Yeah, the cinematic that. universes. And like, yeah. yeah, the Marvel movies were really good, and it's just really dropped off. And that's just because they keep pumping them out. There's not like a lot of quality going into it then, in my opinion. So, no, I agree. In your opinion, is Saltburn like, would you consider that like a wholly original film? No. Yeah. No, I don't think it's entirely original. I think if I had to do like percentage wise, like 85%, 80% original, because okay. it, it does have a lot of themes that I've seen in other media or heard of like being inspired by. So I don't think it's a completely new idea. Yeah. And it's definitely not this like, okay, well, this person is trying to be a part of someone else's life or live as someone else or kind of take on this new personality or identity. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's seen a lot, but I think that the way that they presented it, um, just with that rich, snooty family, and yeah, I know they're British, um, that could be a part of it, but (laughs) like just having that, I think it is distinct enough, but it does get a lot of inspiration from other media. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. And I think that idea of like someone trying to be something that they're not and like kind of intertwining themselves in the lives of someone that's opposite than them, I think that's always going to work. And I think you touched upon Parasite, which I haven't seen, What I've heard is great. And I think it delves into, from what I've heard, similar themes to that. And then obviously the talented Mr. Ripley does that too. And I think it does what this movie is trying to do in a better way. And I think that's, it, it's, it's a good thing that I haven't seen in a lot of films, but I think that's a good, um, just like, there's a good idea behind this movie. I think at its core, there's something there. It's just the big thing is I didn't think it really executed it. And I wasn't really, if you want to call it a twist, I wasn't super impressed or, like, knocked off. Uh, like, I wasn't like, whoa, like, this is crazy. I was just like, I kind of saw it coming, and I don't know. I just, maybe there wasn't enough buildup, or maybe that's not what they were focusing on. I don't know what they were focusing on, and I don't know if you have some, like, um, opinion on that like what you what do you think this movie is like trying to accomplish what are they trying to say or like what their goal is if either of you have an opinion on that that's a good question damn um i think it's highlighting the disconnect from reality that like really fortunate people in society have and it's very apparent in this movie where um, Oliver's character is coming into this brand new life and he's kind of a loner and wants to just fit in and eventually finds like this this niche that he can fit in and then he adopts this new identity (laughs) so he can fit in and be a part of it but these people are so blind and so preoccupied with their own a rich person perfect life that they don't even realize until like oh shit this guy isn't who he says he is mm-hmm. everything we've done for him is for basically no reason and again I don't I don't understand the purpose of killing all of them <laughs> or having them all die yeah um that part did confuse me a lot like yeah I was like, oh man, that's kind of sad that he died. And then it was like, oh shit, he like, 
and then the grave scene, and then the rest of the family, <laughs> and then the the part that like really got me was like, what the hell was him picking up the rocks out of like the riverbed? And I was oh. like, oh, this is just a uh, weird, but. There's a lot of weird parts of that movie. I'm not going to say that that movie was not strange. It was definitely weird. Mm-hmm. But I think it did a good job of highlighting the the distinction between like a lower class or middle class and upper class. Yeah. Completely separate. That's a good point. I, I love how you were talking about the rich... Um, the rich person, like the, the power of protection that money can provide for certain people. Um, it's funny, when, when I was actually watching it at Nick's house, uh, one of my friends pointed out, like, in the flash-forward scenes when he's, like, talking to somebody and his haircut's all different, uh, one, of, one of our friends pointed out that he looked like Elon Musk <laughs> with, like, that goofy-ass haircut yeah. that he was wearing. I don't know if that was intentional. I mean, the movie was distributed by Prime, so maybe that Bezos stick in the middle finger to... I don't know. You think Bezos had some input on this movie? (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, he he distributed it. (laughs) I think he kind of evolved into that, like, role, into into that character that he was playing as a character in the movie, and just adopted it, and it became him. And he was, again, not acting like himself, but donning this new persona that he believed was him. Yeah, so that was, an, that was another question that I was going to talk about, because, I mean, because we were trying to classify the movie. We couldn't quite, like, get it to a specific genre, because, I mean, there's, there's romance elements, and there's thriller elements, and there's a little bit of mystery, and then there's also, like, drama. Um, but more specifically, on the relationship between Oliver and Felix... When you were watching the movie, did you think that he, that Oliver actually wanted Felix, or do you think he just wanted to be Felix? Like, he wanted that life that he had. Even though he wasn't poor, he wasn't poor. He was, like, stable house, stable parents and all that, but he saw the Saltburn Mansion, and he was like, holy shit, this guy, like, I could be the richest man in the world if I had that kind of lifestyle. I think... There's aspects of both of those. I think there's definitely um, a place to say that he was in love or thought that he was in love at times. Um, But I think overall, he was definitely just trying to imprint himself and have that be his life instead. Yeah. I think through that, through trying to be like or um, just like assimilating himself into... Felix's life, I think he might have like developed some like love for him. I think that wasn't his primary goal, but it, it eventually got to that point once he got so obsessed with him. He definitely like fell in love with this idea that he had in his head of who Felix was. And then he had to make sure that like Felix was his, not anyone else's, yeah. eliminating anyone else that could be a problem. Yeah. Um, figuratively or literally um but yeah I think he was just trying to live that life and not necessarily be in love but there's definitely times where maybe he felt like he was in love and I'm not the character so I can't say that certainly yeah um but one of the questions I also have too is like I was sort of brought towards this movie 
um, through the internet and through social media. Um, and it seems like nowadays it, it's existed always throughout movies. I mean, there's been a lot of famous movies pre-internet where they're like, oh, you need to watch it for this part or this part or this scene and whatnot. But I mean, it seems like the main draw towards Saltburn specifically was like this shock value effect that it had on the audience members. How do you feel about movies, not just specifically Saltburn itself, but like movies that have these gratuitous scenes of violence or sex just for the fact that they could go viral for it like they did? Like, I don't know, what, what do you think their intention was there? Um, I think that, well, for me personally, I had heard about the movie, I had heard about the name, I watched part of the trailer once, and that's all I knew, and I went into it completely blind. Um, so there was, for me, there wasn't like that shock factor drawing me to see the movie, but I think that was definitely a part of that that they had to figure out when they're advertising or this movie and trying to get people to come and see it, mm -hmm. but I think that just came naturally with the movie as like a part of it being made. It wasn't something that was added to it so that they could go advertise like, oh, we have a scene with the bathtub. Uh, you guys should, should come and watch this movie because of that. Oh, this character is really weird and creepy. You guys should come watch that. And I think there's, there's times in movies or advertising for movies where it's fine to just find something in the movie that's interesting that people can hook onto and be like, oh, I want to see that movie for this reason. And there's times where they definitely make it apparent where this is a trailer moment in the movie and nothing else in the movie really means anything. So there's definitely a big impact for social media, for advertising, whatever it might be. Um, but I don't think that was their main goal going into this movie. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Barry Keegan? He's a creep. Um, yeah. I think in real life, he seems like a nice guy in real life. As an actor, I don't think... I I still need to see the Banshees of Anishiran. I've heard that's very good. I know he's in that, but mm -hmm. I, after watching this and uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, yeah. that movie I thought was... Uh, I, did not, I did not like that movie. Yeah, that wasn't um, like it. At all. I think he does a perfect job at playing that weird character, that guy that you don't really want to talk to, that you don't really want to interact with, yeah. and that everyone else is creeped out with. And even people in the movie are like, why are you hanging out with this weirdo? Mm -hmm. And he does it so well that it kind of freaks me out sometimes. Yeah. And then you look back at him in real life, he's, like, he's married, he has a kid, <laughs> and you're like, you're doing this, and you have that going on. That's not for me to say, but he does, he acts well in those roles and it fits him and he likes it, so. Well, I was gonna mention this too. I, I talked about this uh, before we had you on, but I also think the best part of his performance for me is, because Connor was mentioning that he was typecast as a creepy character in a lot of the movies he does, but for the first like hour or so of this movie, he plays the like innocent, introverted, schoolboy, awkward and bad with social interactions. 
he really plays that well. And like, I I was not really someone who was super familiar with his work. I saw him in Dunkirk when that came out, but he plays like a very small role in that. Um, but to see that, and then he transforms into a, a much more brutal and uh, creepy and sadistic character throughout the movie, I thought that was probably the best aspect of his performance. And I honestly think it's, He's the character of the movie and the performance of the entire movie, personally. Yeah, I agree with that. That's how he is in The Killing of a Sacred Deer, though. I feel like it's such a similar... Like, obviously, The Killing of a Sacred Deer is, like, way more... Not way more, but it, it's a little bit more darker, I would say. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a much, much more bleak ending to that one. Um, but the character that he's playing in that is very similar. Like you mentioned, he starts off just... Like, he's this quiet, like, awkward outcast type of character. And that's how he plays his character in that movie. Like, he's this... I don't know if he's in high school or middle school. I can't really tell in the movie. But he he has this way of, like... He's just, like, fascinating. Like, you're just kind of, like, enamored with who he is. Because he's such a mystery. And he doesn't let on much details about him. But he finds a way to, like, intertwine himself into people's lives in these movies, at least Killing of a Sacred Deer and Saltburn. And he starts off innocent, but mysterious and a little bit off-putting. And he turns into like this psychopath that has a like maniacal secret plan and he executes it like to perfection. And he just does it in all these movies I've seen him in. And he'll probably be doing that in the Batman as the Joker. But the thing is like these movies in comparing the killing of a sacred deer and saltburn and he's playing this similar young character i both of these movies i gave like very similar reviews to i don't think the movies are that good unfortunately i think he's always from what i've seen he's the best character in the movie but the movie's not that good and i don't know if that says like something about him as an actor like is he just like taking up the whole like is i don't know what the right word is but he's like taking up the whole thing he's like the whole movie it revolves around him and there's almost like a lack of plot because he's doing so much i don't know if that's a thing that i've just like personally noticed or um it's just weird how both the killing of a sacred deer and saltburn were so similar in that way how he's like so great in both and he portrays such a similar character but to me both movies kind of sucked in a way <laughs> i don't know it's just weird how there could be such a great acting performance and the movie is not good i don't know like is there any other examples of movies you've seen like that because i feel like this is such a unique thing that i where where there's like such a great acting performance and the movie kind of revolves around a character but the movie's not that great i know you like saltburn so it doesn't really um, uh, it probably you wouldn't agree with that, but I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen anything. Cause I think this dude's like borderline given one of the best performances of the year, to be honest, from what I've seen. Um, but it's weird cause the movie, I would say is just average. I don't think this is like an awful movie, but I thought that like Daniel Day Lewis in Gangs of New York like, I thought he was easily the best part of that movie. Okay. And, that's a, and that's a better movie than agree, this yeah. is, but... <laughs> yeah, that's a score says. Like, he yeah. eats that fucking performance up. Yeah, is the... What? Bill? Bill the Butcher, Bill the Butcher. Or something? Yeah. He's throwing axes or whatever. 
Yeah. But yeah, I've, I've seen that before. I mean, there's probably plenty of movies. I know, Oh, yeah. Um, Anna de Armas, she got nominated for the movie Blonde, but I think that was oh, the only Oscar horrible. that... She's, I don't even know if she's that good in that. That movie's <laughs> just like a sadistic movie that should have never been made. Have you seen that, Sawyer? Blonde? Uh, no. Apparently, man, no. well, it seems like sadistic movies are getting all the buzz now. Yeah, but that <laughs> one's a whole nother level of sadistic. <laughs> like, that movie should have never been made. But, yeah, I think Barry Keegan, if I'm saying that correctly, he's such, like, an interesting, like, unique one-of-one actor. I haven't seen... Like, I don't even know who you would say has played, like, similar roles to him. And he does this consistently. I would say, like, Jake Gyllenhaal, but it's not, like, that often that he gets into that creepy role. Like, yeah. he's, he's always kind of just, like, mysterious or, like, a little off-putting. Yeah. But then he has roles where he's just complete 180. And he's just, like, this this nice dude. And he's just hanging out. And he's just a little awkward. But yeah. I think that Barry can play that character so well it's it is kind of creepy right. uh the internet says character actors who play creepy really well uh the first one that popped up is willem dafoe okay. i mean i could definitely see that yeah, like, willem he, dafoe. he's a, he's a lot older obviously and he didn't know he's starring that he was in <clears throat> he was in movies like platoon and born on the fourth of july like a lot more serious and like regular film roles i should say mm-hmm. compared to what he does now but and I mean, even even now, he was in movies like The Florida Project or like The Northman, where he's not like a creepy person. But I I don't know. I do want to see a movie with him where he's not playing that. How do you think he'd do in like a comedy? <laughs> like, I, honestly, I think I he'd do fine in a comedy. Yeah, yeah, I could see I could see him pull it off. I feel like he's also like he's not actually that young. I think he's thirty one. Yeah, yeah, he's not really that young. So he's. It's weird, because he's just getting, like, popular now, and I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where he goes. I want to see his Joker portrayal. Mm-hmm. I know that they've kind of hinted towards him with some scenes, but I think he can give... I don't know if he'll be Heath Ledger, but I think he's a great choice for Joker, and I think Barry Keegan's, like, one of the best rising, if you want to call him that, actors in Hollywood right now. I really like him. Do you think he can be a Joaquin Phoenix Joker? As good as that? Yeah. Or, uh, he's not on the same Can he be a Jared album. Leto Joker? Oh, okay. <laughs> I think he could I think he'd be better than a Jared Leto Joker. Yeah. Um, I would hope a so. A Jack Nicholson Joker. <laughs> <laughs> if he's if he's not as good as Jared Leto then yeah, then we have a huge problem. That's another creepy actor too. I mean, yeah, he, Jared Leto. He, well, he's just creepy in real life. I feel but... like Christian Bale could have played this role, like a young Christian Bale. Mm. He wasn't really playing creepy roles, though. But, I mean, like, American Psycho was 2000. Yeah, that's what makes like, me think of it, his role in American Psycho. Like, maybe him 10 years prior But, like, to that. I don't know. That, that's a little interesting, though, because, like, in American Psycho, when you watch that movie, Christian Bale, like, we know what he does. We know how psychotic he actually is. But, like, when he's in the general public, he has, like, the charisma and charm of, like, a fucking Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, an action star. And, like, I don't know if Barry Keegan... I don't know if he has that charisma in him, to be honest. I mean, he's very, very... He probably does. I've seen, like, one note. I've seen a couple... Not, not like, full interviews, but I've seen clips of him. He seems like he could do it. I don't know. I don't know. Um, any, any last final thoughts? Anything that you want to bring out about Saltburn that we haven't already talked about, Sawyer? Um, 
I didn't go see the movie because Jacob Lordy is attractive. I just want to make that want to make that clear. Um, I I didn't go into the movie for any reason. Period. I was just going to see a movie. That was all. And my <laughs> opinions are based on what I thought when I saw it the first time, and I haven't changed it since. So, uh, and I'm not planning on changing it because other people don't like the movie, and that's fine. I only watched the movie because of Jacob Lordy's eyebrow piercing, personally. So. <laughs> oh, and when he took it out, you were pissed. <laughs> 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 almost walked out of the theater. <laughs> um, Alright, coming up, we're going to be talking about the NFL playoffs, um, coach of the year, coaching changes, and a couple more things. Alright, welcome back to Scoreboard Cinema. Um, now for this section, we're going to be doing a little recap of the NFL playoffs of last weekend, which was obviously the AFC and NFC divisional rounds. We're also going to be talking about the NFC and AFC championship game predictions and a couple of other things that we have on the table. Um, the first one I want to open up to is Coach of the Year. Now, this was a piece I had. Honestly, I know he's probably not going to win it because it's um, it's based on regular season. I believe they cast the votes before the playoffs even start. Mm-hmm. But I'm here to argue Matt Floor, Matt LaFleur for Fringe Coach of the Year. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, I was ready to give it to some of the obvious coaches. Um, D'Amico Ryan's taking the Texans to the playoffs is a great story. Kevin Stefanski taking the Browns to the playoffs with four different starting QBs is crazy. And obviously Dan Campbell, even for what the expectations for the Lions were, it seems by most people's eyes they've overachieved in what they've done. But the more I think about it, I'm not so sure that uh, Matt LaFleur doesn't deserve it. Um, I believe that because it's strictly a regular season award, he's not going to get it. But to be honest, the Packers, in my eyes, ended the season as like a honest Super Bowl contender. They barely lost the game against the 49ers. It was down to the very last minute. And they beat two of the teams that are left in the playoffs in the Chiefs and the Detroit Lions in the regular season. Um, Matt LaFleur and Jordan Love seem to be this new quarterback-coach tandem that's been really fantastic, and I'm really nervous about the Bears now because they need to, they need to pick up their shit because they clearly have the worst quarterback or the worst coach in the division, and our question marks are at are about where our quarterback's going to be. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think about Coach of the Year? I have Matt LaFleur as my Coach of the Year. Like before, you even brought it up that. Like, as a potential idea, he was, in my mind, the coach of the year. I don't I don't understand the Kevin Stefanski coach of the year hype. I know he's... Deshaun Watson, obviously a huge disappointment. But if you go back and watch him, I'm not going to argue that he's what he was. But in that game versus the Ravens earlier in the year, he was playing, like, not at an elite level. But I think he was average in that game. And the Browns won that game, not solely because of him, but I think he was good enough. Um, I'm probably in the minority on that. I obviously hate Deshaun Watson as a person, and I think he's kind of washed up. But I put him in a, a little under, like a tier, like a Russell Wilson or something. But I don't see the Kevin Stefanski one. He had like a generational defense to work with. I don't think he's like the mastermind behind that. 
I don't know what he's doing there. Um, obviously, his team was kept alive and went did way more than they should have with how many injuries they had. But I think Joe Flacco was like on some insanity run. He was a bit of a miracle, and I don't I don't attribute much of their success to Kevin Stefanski, honestly. Um, that might be unpopular. I also like the idea of D'Amico Ryans as coach of the year, just because like the Texans had absolutely no expectations at the start of the year, and they were just magnificent to end it. And then Dan Campbell, obviously, everyone loves Dan Campbell. His team's now fighting for a Super Bowl spot right now. They're one game away from it. I think that team has overachieved a little bit. The offense is spectacular. I think the defense is really, really bad. And Dan Campbell's obviously a great leader, and I put him in, like, top 10 coaches in the NFL. So I think he's a great candidate. But I have Matt LaFleur because it's the Jordan Love show. He's developed Jordan Love, like, at a crazy level. He has had crazy progression throughout the year. Jordan Love started out. Everyone thought this dude sucked to begin the year, and he did suck. But there is at some point around, like, midseason or a little bit after where he flipped the switch and Jordan Love became in my eyes, almost a top five quarterback in the league, unfortunately, to say as a Bears fan. But I think Matt LaFleur is heavily uh, involved with his turnaround. And also, like, the rest of that offense is not that good. I mean, Aaron Jones is a really good running back, but A.J. Dillon sucks, and he was starting for a lot of the year. And they had to contend with having him in the backfield, who probably runs a six-second, 40-yard dash. They have Dontavian Wicks and Romeo Dobbs and an Arby's employee out there at wide receiver. That's crazy that their passing game is so good. And their defense, they had Joe Barry, who's like the worst defensive coordinator we've seen in a long time. So I think Matt LaFleur did like a tremendous job. And he's my like runaway pick for coach of the year. But I can definitely see an argument for D'Amico Ryans or Dan Campbell. What do you think, Sawyer? Well... You know what my answer is going to be. I think Dan Campbell has changed the face of the Lions and the entire team and the entire community and everything that revolves around them. I think his time being, well, being a part of the Lions, being a player on the Lions, being an assistant on the Lions, being a coach on the Lions, being a head coach on the Lions, like he's made his way into the into the deep bowels of being a Detroit Lion. Mm -hmm. And I think that his run on really changing the team started last year. It's, we started one and six. It, it looked like it was just going to be another same old Lions, a terrible year. Let's finish one and 16 and just move on to the next year. But no, we decided to go eight and nine, yeah. beating the Packers at the end of the year to keep them out of the playoffs or nine and eight, my bad. And it really showed some major improvement and hope being like developed for this team. And I think that it was only further drawn upon and used in this past season to go uh, 12 and five in the regular season is crazy. Mm -hmm. for, for the Lions it's crazy, for someone like the Chiefs or the 49ers, maybe not as crazy, or the Cowboys if they weren't terrible. Um, <laughs> But then to go and win a home playoff game, to win two home playoff games, to make it to the NFC uh, championship, like it means a lot. And I know that that's not really factored in 
when you're thinking about coach of the year or player of the year, whatever it might be, I think that Dan Campbell has really left his mark on the organization, on the team, and on all the players that are involved in Detroit. So I think that he, in my opinion, should win coach of the year. I mean, I think they're, I think they're all great choices, honestly. I think, I think, like, I don't know who exactly will get it, but I am curious. Um, my next segment is kickers. What the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so just to recap... For half of the games last week, we had two games that were at least arguably decided by field goals. First, we had the Packers. The Packers have the ball. I believe there's like six or seven minutes on the clock. Aaron Jones breaks out like a major, I don't know, 40-yard run. And then, I don't know, they get to like the 40 or the 30. So right away, you're like, okay... There, I believe at that point it was, was it 17 to 21? Uh, I don't remember the exact score. Um, but either way, like, if they make a field goal here, they at least have to score a touchdown and get, I think, the extra point. Maybe they have to go for two. I don't honestly remember. But they have this guy. His name is Anders Carlson. And he kicked at the University of Auburn. So, listen... I've never been an NFL draft scout. I don't know jack shit about what they see. I don't know, like, I don't know how much they factor in measurables and in-game performance or not. But I just need to. I, I need to read this out here. So, Anders Carlson kicked at the University of Auburn for five years. Here, here's his field goal percentage every year. First year, sixty percent. Second year, seventy-two percent. Third year, 90.9%. Then 66.7%, and then 70.6%. He has a 72% career kicking percentage in college, mind you. That's terrible. And the Packers, and Matt LaFleur was quoted (laughs) as saying, I saw this on a Bleacher Report article, he said that they asked Matt LaFleur on like a press conference, they're like, what do you do when Anders Carlson lines up to kick? And he says... And I'm quoting this, I just pray. <laughs> like, you have, I get it. The Packers had no expectations this year. They weren't expected to beat Dallas. They weren't even expected to be in the playoffs. But I can't for the life of me understand how you can see this team who, for they're the youngest team in the entire NFL, and you have an absolute goober at kicker. <laughs> like, he's not... He's not just a bad NFL kicker. He was bad in college. Yeah, he's a bad XFL kicker. And mind you, he wasn't... Like, I don't know where exactly he was taken. But, like, he wasn't picked up. He was drafted. The Packers drafted this guy. You don't draft kickers that much. Is he Daniel Carlson's brother? The Raiders Uh, kicker? I don't think so. Uh... Oh, no, okay, Daniel Carlson is his brother. Yeah, okay, Okay. so that's why he got drafted, because Daniel Carlson's, like, one of the best kickers in the NFL. But, like, I just can't, for the life of me, to waste a pick on something like that. They just, and actually, they did end up signing another guy. Um, The Packers signed another guy to compete with him, but... Was he from Division (laughs) 5? 
Do you think did they cut him or no? Anders no, they haven't officially cut him, but they uh, they got a new kicker. I don't I didn't hear what his name was, yeah. but besides that, um, they also in the Bills game against the Kansas City Chiefs. So personally, I don't think this would have made a difference, but it's twenty four to twenty one. Um, they got to the two minute warning. Um, Josh Allen, instead of like trying to get any yards, just tries to take the deep shots on like all three downs. And then they're like, okay, it's 24, 21. There's a minute 20 on the clock. The chiefs have two timeouts and you see Tyler Bass line up. And I could see this on the broadcast. It wasn't on the, the uprights that he was kicking to. But in the back, you can see the other goalpost. The orange flags are damn near perpendicular to the uprights because the wind is blowing so goddamn hard. Yeah. And then you see this guy. He just absolutely kicks it, and the wind just takes it, and probably that it probably drilled a fan in the head because that <laughs> shit was so wide right. <laughs> yeah. It, of course, rings true of the 1991 Super Bowl against the Bills and Giants where Scott Norwood went wide right against them. And I just have to wonder, like, just for the subject of debate, is kicking harder than we're giving it credit for? Because I, like, I like to, I would imagine it's not easy, but I I find it too hard to imagine that there's a league where we can only have like eight good kickers out of like the thirty-two teams. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I think Anders Carlson is like an anomaly. That dude might be like honestly the worst kicker I've seen in my lifetime. I don't know what his percentage was this year. Eighty-one. Eighty-one point eight. Eighty-one. Okay, that's higher than I thought. That's still not good. I don't know what's the average. You think like eighty-five plus? 86? Well, I know that like when Vinatieri retired. He ended with like an eighty-two percent, but that's because uh, his, well, his last two seasons he was terrible. Okay, well, Anders Carlson, go to the USFL, get out of the <laughs> NFL, ship him away to Hong Kong for all I care. The Tyler Bass thing, honestly, this might be a hot take, but I, I don't think most kickers would have made that. The wind on that at that game was so crazy. I think that kick. That coaching decision to kick it there, they had to do it, I think. But that was almost like a prayer. I don't think most kickers are making that one. And Tyler Bass, in my opinion, is a good NFL kicker. He's reliable. I know he's Bills fans and other NFL fans have been critical of him in like clutch time situations. He's not the best, but he's definitely above average, and I don't put that too much on him. I think the Bills are cursed. I also think Stephon Diggs turned into a ghost that game, and he kind of turned into a ghost the second half of the season. So I don't put it on Tyler Bass. I put it on the offense. And you said Josh Allen was taking deep shots. I don't blame him. That's what he's known for. That's what he's good at. And Stephon Diggs forgot how to track a football in that game. And if he catches that, I think we're talking about a whole different narrative. And I think we're talking about Josh Allen as this clutch big time performer, uh, at least in that game. And that, that was a magnificent throw, by the way. Stephon Diggs just, I don't know what he happened. He didn't track there. it. Yeah, he didn't track it. So I put that on, I don't, 
honestly, Stephon Diggs, you're supposed to be an elite number one. I'm putting a lot of blame on him for not showing up. Also, where was Gabe Davis? Not he was that. Was he hurt? Yeah, he was in the Okay, I was about to say, like, did he miss the plane or something? <laughs> but I also the Bills defense, like, what are we doing here? We're rolling out practice squad receiver, practice squad Klein or whatever his name is. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're all their best players on defense are old, like Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde, Von Miller is like 85. Like, you know. He, me and Von Miller tie for sacks in the NFL this season. <laughs> yeah, Did you yeah. Know that? Von Miller has been a complete disappointment in Buffalo. All their defensive players are like old, and the young guys they have kind of suck, to be honest. Apart from like Ed Oliver, their D tackle, who's like a little bit above average. All their other players are fading into retirement. So I, I think they missed their Super Bowl window, which was two years ago. I didn't expect them to win that game. And I don't put it on Tyler Bass. I think Josh Allen's amazing. Stephon Diggs, what are you doing? And is he a new McDonald's employee after this game? Like, where are we talking about Stephon Diggs in the NFL? Like, I had him as a top five receiver going into this year. But I don't even know where to put him anymore. Is he even top 20 anymore? Like, he literally has disappeared. Like, I don't know. What are we doing, Bills? What do you think they should do about kicking situations? First, I want to say Brandon Aubrey, amazing kicker. Oh, yeah. Fantastic season. I think his story is great. I think that he's the most likable, if not only likable, person on the Dallas Cowboys. Um, Another great person, Cairo Santos. Great. Like, surprisingly, really good. And I'm I'm happy the Bears have a decent kicker and not... um, uh, what's his face on the Packers that you guys were just talking about? Anders Carlson. Yeah, the mystery man. And I think that kicking, like you were saying, Jack, it doesn't seem that hard. But then you see these guys miss, like, a layup kick. <coughs> or, like, maybe you would account for the for the wind when you're kicking outside when you play in Buffalo. And it's going to be cold and windy. And you probably have to do it every other time you're kicking outside. And it's just, a lot of it doesn't make sense. At the same time, I'm not getting paid as much as they are to go kick a football, but I, I think that there is something to be said about the state of kicking and special teams in the NFL. I feel like you're finding more in general people going for it on fourth down. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. or oh, let's try for the touchdown, and, oh, we'll get stopped on down to the three-yard line. Instead of, okay, let's go for the chip shot and go for three. That I, I think that teams are phasing out the um, the real dependence on a field goal. But I, th- I think the Bills just got stuck in that game. I think they got stuck and they didn't really have another quote-unquote option to, to pick from. Because you're right, Diggs wasn't there. Davis was hurt. Kincaid's not like the Superman of the Buffalo Bills, like he's he's good. Tupac Shakur is yeah, the best he's, receiver. Yeah, Khalil Shakur has turned into he's, like their best receiver. He's not. There's no one on the Bills team where I'm like, that's the greatest player in that position. I mean, Demar Hamlin. <laughs> oh, the fake punch. Demar Hamlin was on the team, and he plays for the Buffalo Bills, but he's not like amazing. There's no one on that team where I'm like, oh my God, Josh Allen's really. Good. Yeah, so that also sounds really good. Um, down James Cook when uh, when he decides to play well is really good. Yeah, but that's just didn't, it wasn't a great game. No. 
Also, what is that Damar Hamlin fake punt? Was that like a Chat GPT created <laughs> play? Because that, that's that was one of the worst plays I had ever seen. It was the most obvious play I had ever seen. Yeah, it was like the Lions doing the fake punt on Thanksgiving. It didn't make any sense. Yeah, and I think that they were gonna look back and be like, "Okay, let's not do that again." And but yeah, kicking <coughs> it's just it's a weird part in the NFL right now. A uh, kicker will never win MVP. They might. Uh, is there a special teams player of the year? I don't think so. Okay, so it's never going to be. I think it's like all pro, all pro first team. Yeah, but is there a kicker on there? Was it Brandon Aubrey and Justin Tucker this year? It's probably Brandon. It's got to be Brandon Aubrey. That dude, I, I like his Brandon Aubrey and Justin kicking. Tucker. And it's like when you think of kickers, you probably think, oh, Justin Tucker. Uh, I think of Matt Prater. Um, and oh, just yeah, like guys that have been consistently good. Or Young Hoku, he's good. But then you get like Harrison Butker. <laughs> then you get these random ass teams with random kickers that yeah. just don't show up. And you wonder why you're not winning any games. Who I wanna know who the Patriots have. Oh, Patriot. Chad Ryland? Yeah. Is he yeah, he, no, he, he might be okay. worse than Anders Carlson. Okay. I think Bill Belichick might be praying when Chad like, I get yeah. that a lot of teams aren't focusing on kickers and getting the field goal points. Extra points still matter, too, and there's a lot of times this year where it's going to go off the upright or you just completely shank it, and you're looking back like, really? I know the Lions, uh, Riley Patterson was not performing up to the level he was supposed to, and so they dropped him, and the Browns picked him up. First thing he did on the Browns was miss an extra point. And so <laughs> he, that's, that's one of those cases where I'm like, I, I wish he was doing better, and I wish... You could stay on the team, but again, I'm glad the Lions got him out of there when he was not looking his best. So, so okay, you guys talked a little bit about Josh Allen, but I need yeah. to. I wrote this down because I need to know it from you guys if you agree. So I had one. Um, is Josh Allen the Philip Rivers of the 2020s? Because, and I'll preface this by saying, so Philip Rivers first uh, five years in the NFL. 14 and 2, lost in the divisional, 11 and 5, lost the conference championship against Brady. And that one was a mess up too. The guy intercepted Brady, but he didn't go down and they punched it out and recovered the fumble. Yeah. Um 8 and 8, somehow they were first in the division that year. Um lost in the divisional again though. 13 and 3, lost the divisional and then 9 and 7, missed the playoffs. So and obviously that team was also probably more talented because they had Tomlinson and they had Antonio Gates and players like that. But I need to say this. You guys were defending Josh Allen. I don't know if I can. I'm too, I'm so sick of him being like this sympathetic figure every time he loses. And I get it. He didn't play awful. He didn't have an official turnover and he didn't kick the field goal. And I get they had injuries on the defensive side and injuries on the offensive side. But this, like, this was the worst iteration of the Kansas City Chiefs that he'll probably ever play. And on top of that, they also had a bunch of lucky breaks that teams don't usually get. They, like, they did the idiotic fake punt, but then that got negated because Andy Reid was like, let's run a jet sweep to McCole Hardman, and then he fumbles it out the back of the goddamn end zone. So then they get it back at the 20. And then... When they're trying to get um, in field goal range, it's like third and nine. Josh Allen like scrambles for like five yards, and then Chris Jones punches the ball out of him, and he fumbles oh, it. Yeah. 
And then one of the corners, I don't remember who it was, instead of falling on it and pretty much ending the game, he tried to scoop and score it, and he fucked that up, and then uh, Dalton Kincaid batted it back and saved it. Um, so yeah, I just can't, I can't defend him today. I know he didn't have an official turnover, but it was just like, you're not going to get a worse Chiefs team than you are this year. Yeah. And I get it. Like they weren't even supposed to be in the playoffs after they started, but there were too many games like this year where they probably should have won more games had they been in a better spot. I think about the game against the New York Jets. I think about um, the game against the Denver Broncos. Like, there's too many games where I saw Josh Allen and I was like, you're taking all these stupid risks. Mm -hmm. I still think he's top five or six, but he just needs to be way more, uh, like, careful. And I think, like, that's a game they, they easily could have won that game. Yeah. Well, where do you put Josh Allen, like, ranking-wise? Where do you... Um, you said five or six? Or is he in that top five, like, higher than five? He's probably five. I mean, I can't, okay. like... Yeah, because yeah, you're going to have Mahomes. You're going to have uh, Lamar. You're going to have... I have Burrow, too. Okay, that's interesting. I don't have Burrow. I think Burrow needs to stay healthy before I put him there. That dude's been a injury question mark every other year yeah i mean he's great when he plays but he doesn't play that much that's the thing and i think he's also working with some crazy good weapons his line sucks but that's a whole nother discussion but in terms of like his career parallel to philip rivers i would say like in terms of accolades records and Playoff performance, yes. I think the Bills and the Chargers are the two most cursed franchises in the NFL right now. I mean, like, just unspeakable things. You can't even write the script for these teams. Like, just horrible things are happening to them. Finally, the Chargers get Jim Harbaugh. It's like their saving grace. It's the first good thing they can feel good about in a while. But um, I don't think Phillip Rivers was ever... Okay, in my opinion, Josh Allen's, like, quarterback three for me, probably. I'll probably say Mahomes, then I'll put Lamar, and then Josh Allen. Or I'd put Lamar over, or i put Josh Allen over Lamar, even. But I don't think Rivers was ever, like, top three. He might have been, like, five at his peak, but I don't think, like, skill-wise, Rivers is ever as good as Allen was. And I think Rivers always had a better supporting cast. He had LT, Ladanian Tomlinson. He had Malcolm Floyd. He had, like, pretty good receivers. He had good offensive line, good blocking. He had good defenses. They would choke in bad moments. But Two he, good running backs his entire career. Who? Well, I mean, because who's the backup to LT? He played on the Eagles. Oh, Michael but, Turner or whatever? No, no, no. The, the short guy. Darren Sproles. Darren Sproles. He had Darren Sproles, too. He had Melvin Gordon, too, his prime years. Yeah. No, I think Phillip Rivers always had better supporting cast. Not that Phillip Rivers was bad, but, I mean, yeah, they're both playing for cursed franchises, and I think Josh Allen's never going to win a Super Bowl that window passed two years ago. So, I think, yeah, their careers are very similar to each other, but I think once it's all said and done, Josh Allen is 
will have been a better quarterback. I just maybe he won't have the same longevity that Rivers had because of his play style. But I'm like probably higher on Josh Allen than you, I would think. Yeah. Um, I think that's just his play style. He's like a gambler. He's he's a Brett Favre type. So I think he's this generation's Brett Favre, but he can also move better than Brett Favre. He's like that balance between Brett Favre and Cam Newton. That's just like pretty unique, and I think. Yeah, he's my second best quarterback until Burrow proves me otherwise and comes back and plays a full season without breaking his thumb. <laughs> like, come on, Joe Burrow. How high are you on Josh Allen Sawyer? I like him. I think he's a good quarterback. Like, there's definitely times where he's a little inconsistent or he just has a bad game or he tries to run the entire game by himself, and that doesn't always work. But I think he's still overall a good quarterback in this league. I think if he gets maybe a more consistent wide receiver core, yeah, then he'll be better. Yeah, and so he doesn't have to run for the first down every like <laughs> ten plays. And uh, I think he is he is still good. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, you know let's do AFC NFC Championship game predictions. So. The first game, we got the AFC Championship game. The Kansas City Chiefs are being hosted by the Baltimore Ravens in Baltimore. (coughs) Um, For all the betting fans out there, the Ravens are currently favored by three and a half points. Um, Obviously, this is probably the best team that Lamar's ever had and the worst team that Patrick Mahomes has ever had. What do you guys think the outcome's going to be? Do you think it's going to be close? Which way are you swinging? And is there going to be any surprises? I think uh, the Ravens will come out of this game victorious. I think what you're saying with the Chiefs having this awful team is true. They, they lack that consistency that the Ravens have been having pretty much all season. Mark Andrews being out is a big factor, but has that really stopped them? I don't think so, and I think that you'll get someone like Zay Flowers or you'll get Lamar in general. It's just such a great player that I don't think they're going to have really much of a hard time competing with Pat Mahomes and his like two receivers that he has. And Yes, Pacheco's good, but there gets to a point where it's like, is he enough? With the Ravens having the best defense in the league with with the Ravens being this kind of all-powerful team, I, I really don't think the Chiefs have a good chance. But I still think it will be an exciting game, and it could be close, depending on what happens. Yeah, I, I have the Ravens winning, too. I think they don't have, like, a single weakness. I don't know even, like, what would you point to for a weakness? Their run, their run like, game is so good, and they're doing this with Gus Edwards and who knows, Melvin Gordon at age 36, and Justice Hill, who does God knows what. I haven't seen a minute of him playing, but he's getting yards, I guess. It's working, so I don't really see any weakness for them, and obviously the Chiefs have the worst receiving core in the NFL. Like Certainly left over, yeah. Besides maybe like the Jets, I know Garrett Wilson's obviously really good, but besides that, it's digging at XFL talent. The Chiefs are, they don't have a reliable receiver. They have Travis Kelsey, who's 
still obviously he's reliable, but he's not as good as he once was. I think the Chiefs defense is like surprisingly top five defense with really no superstar besides like Chris Jones, who I think is probably the best D tackle in the NFL. But besides that, they don't really have like big name guys. Legereus Sneed is, I think, an underrated guy, but I don't know who else they really have that's a big name, but they're just an overall solid unit. I think the Ravens are kind of similar in that way. They're better, obviously, but they don't have, like, that big-name guy, um, Roquan Smith, maybe, <laughs> but uh, Marlon Humphrey, but he's injured every other game, too, and they have their backups come in and play as good, like Brandon Stevens, and I don't even know who else they have coming out there. They might have the ghost of Marcus Peters playing. <laughs> I don't know, but I think the Ravens are definitely going to win this one, but I think it could be a good game. It could... It won't be high scoring, I don't think, but um, I, I'd look for the Ravens to win this one and then move on to win the Super Bowl. Okay, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. This is probably the best team that Lamar has had. I mean, we're so far gone of the of the John Brown, Michael Crabtree, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Willie Sneed tight end attack that they had back in the day. Yeah. Um, Kamar Aiken. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, they've dramatically improved for sure. Um, I just wonder though, like, I feel like with the Ravens, they want to beat, like, they know what they're going up against, the defense especially. Yeah. But I feel like at a certain point, when the Ravens were playing the Texans, they were like, okay, this guy's a rookie. His best receiver's not even playing. And they were like... You're saying Tank Bell's the best? Who? Better than Nico Collins? Is he? I thought they were like I'd say Nico Collins is way better. I I still think Tank Bell's good. But I put Nico Collins... I think Nico Collins, like, where the hell did that guy come from? Because he he turned into a top 10 receiver, in my opinion. I mean, I feel... That dude's insanely good. I think Tank Bell's really good, too. But I think Nico Collins is almost elite. I don't know how he did it or where he came from, but Nico Collins is... It's called, have, it's called having C.J. Stroud instead of Davis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. Maybe, yeah. No, um, but yeah, I think that's good. But it, it's been pointed out to me that statistically, the Chiefs defense and the Ravens <laughs> defense are actually not that far off from each other. Yeah. Now, you can say that the Chiefs, the other teams in the Chiefs division... Every single quarterback and head coach has had been fired that season except for Sean Payton on the Broncos because every other quarterback either got hurt like Herbert or benched like Garoppolo or Russell Wilson. And obviously, Brandon Staley got fired. And Good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, McDaniels is on uh, Cabo San Lucas <laughs> with his heel Elliott right now. Yeah. Um, but... Either way, I mean, the Chiefs did play some good teams in the regular season. They played the Bills, and they played the Philadelphia Eagles, and they played a bunch of other teams, and they held them well. Um, The Ravens, I just, I don't know. Lamar has played good good in two playoff games. He's won both of those games, so the, the MO is basically just don't suck. But, I don't know, like... There's something to be said about a team that has nothing to play for. Like, the the Chiefs, 
I, I did not think they were going to make the AFC Championship game because of what I saw in the regular season. Because I saw they got they lost to AOC at quarterback. They lost oh, to Aiden O'Connell yeah, yeah. on the Raiders. Uh, they lost to the Russell Wilson Broncos. They almost lost to the Zach Wilson Jets. I mean, like, there were so many games they had this season where I was like, what the fuck is going on with your offense? Yeah. But... Matt Nagy, that's what's <laughs> going on with your offense. He probably is going to take a lot of the blame for it. But, um... So, yeah, I think... I think the Ravens will win by a field goal. I don't think they'll cover... Um, because I actually think this Chiefs team has sort of been perfect for, like, cold weather now. Because they have Isaiah yeah. Pacheco, who's quietly, like, a top 10 running back now. He's, like, surprisingly reliable. He was yeah. getting, like, nine yards a carry against the Buffalo Bills defense. I know that's not fantastic, but still. Um, and, yes, obviously they don't have the receiving threat. So they can't be down. They can't be down a lot. Because I, I don't yeah. think they're a big comeback team. But... I still, like, the Ravens better be careful here. So your issue with the Ravens is, like, their passing game? Is that what it is? Uh, Like, is that how you could see them? My issue with them is clock management and closing games. Because they, late, like, let's be honest here. They should be undefeated. They They should have won every single game they played this season. They barely lost to the Browns. They, like, Lamar had a pick six that got tipped up. They lost to the Indianapolis Colts without... Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, they lost one of those games. So, I'm just worried about, like... Because I think the game will be tight going into the fourth. And I can't guarantee that, like, I don't think they're very good in clutch situations. I think it's because, like, their receiving core has definitely improved from what we've seen in the past. I still don't think their receiving room's that good. I think it's average at best. I mean... Odell Beckham. I have him on my fantasy team. Yeah. I'd consider him as an average ride receiver right now. Like, he's old. He's reliable. That's about all I have to say about Odell. Zay Flowers, he's a rookie. He's excellent, I think. But he's more of, like, a slot guy. I mean, he's their number one. But I don't think he's enough to, like, um, make a passing game, like, go crazy. I think he's good. He, you don't want him as your number one. I'm high on Zay Flowers. I think he's super elusive, and he's a good weapon. Um, but he's not a number one receiver. And then who else do they have? Rashad Bateman. Yeah. They got Devin DuVernay, who's <laughs> just strictly on kick return now. They got, who's the other guy? Nelson Aguilar, who we know him. We know Aguilar. I'm like Aguilar. Yeah, he can't catch a football if his life depended on it. So, yeah, I mean, he's gotten better hands now. And I actually thought he was okay this year, but... That's a word I think of when I think of their receiving room is okay. And I think Lamar kind of carries them. Okay, and now the one that people are probably waiting for. So it's the the Northern California San Francisco 49ers against the big, bad Motor City Detroit Lions. We all know who we're starting with, Sawyer. What do we got? You already know what I'm going to say. Um, I want your analysis. I think it really comes down to uh, a couple things. One, how's the secondary going to play? Uh, it's been looking terrible uh, for, <coughs> I want to say, all season. Uh, I don't think the Lions have a good secondary at all. I don't think it's the worst in the league, but it's up there. Um, 
I think it's just inconsistent, and there's there's too many times where a ball just gets dropped right into the receiver's hands, and the the, the next defender is like five feet away from him, and I think that's <laughs> that's what's gonna kill us if they can keep getting those consistent deep shots and just racking up a bunch of points on the secondary. That's what's gonna ruin it. Also, Christian McCaffrey, amazing running back. But I think our run defense is quite strong. I don't think that's going to be as much of an issue as the passing game is going to be against the Lions. On, on offense, I feel great about our run. I think Gibbs and Montgomery um, both have very incredible talent. Uh, I think they're both great running backs. I think that they could be able to score at least one touchdown between the two of them, if not two. Uh, I think that that's completely feasible. I think that the Niners have a great secondary and an okay run defense, but that helps with the Lions because we aren't really throwing deep shots. We have St. Brown who likes to go in the slot a lot and Reynolds who will get the 10, 12 yard play every so often and he might not even be in this week. Uh, and then you have Sam Laporta, who's just a consistent receiver and can get the job done. So I think what it really comes down to is Lions defense. And that's what's been all season. I think that the Lions need to be able to come out hot on offense and be able to stuff the, the 49ers offense on the defensive side. If that means getting a fumble or a strip sack or, or getting a pick six or something like that. I think that could definitely change the game and the energy around the stadium, but I'm just waiting to see what happens, and I think that the Lions could definitely win this game. Okay. Um, quick question for you. Is the punter <coughs> even being activated for the Detroit Lions? Ooh, Jack Fox? Yeah, is he even going to be activated for this game? I sure hope not. Um, but uh, <laughs> if, it's a, if we're inside our 30... And we decide to go for like a fourth and five fake punt. That's stupid, first of all. <laughs> but I really think that there are times where going for it on fourth down is the right move. There are times where punting it away is the right move. And finding the rhythm is what's really going to define the game, what's going to define how we decide to run our sets of plays down the field. If it's going to be a third and long, why are we running it or why are we throwing it? It, it depends mm-hmm. on what's going on and how the rest of the game is really shaped. Yeah. Will Dan Skipper be reporting in as eligible? Will they do that? Probably not. Probably not unless it's like a big lead at the end of the game and something crazy happens. That's the only time okay. I can see them bringing the lineman in. So I think this game is going to boil down to protection because – this is like the strength of the Niners' defense is without question their line. They got Chase Young, they got Nick Bosa, <laughs> yeah. who we know he feasts on stuff like that. Um, he just eats up everybody. Um, but then we also have the Detroit Lions' offensive line. So we have, of course, Frank Ragno, Panay Sewell, all those other guys up front who are fantastic and I think the main thing for the Detroit Lions offense to go is because they're going to need to be ready for third down passing situations 
they need to hold up against them because I, I do like Jared Goff. I think he's a good quarterback, but when he's pressured, his numbers are not good. They're, they just are not good. He's not good off his spot. He's sort of afraid to run at all. Even just moving outside the pocket, it's weird. He's sort of afraid of doing that. But I think that, like, if need be, like, he's not afraid to hang in the pocket and take a hit, which I also will give him credit for. But I think that's going to be the number one thing they need to take advantage of. You mentioned that the Detroit Lions secondary is bad. But honestly, like, I don't think... I don't fear Purdy taking, like, 30-yard bombs out of the air, especially if Debo's not 100%. He just – he practiced today, but – I think he's playing. Yeah, I think he's playing, but I don't think – and they don't even really use Debo in, like, uh, no, go-routes or anything like that. So, like, if anything, maybe Ayuk will bust open for one. Maybe if Ray-Ray McLeod will get you on a fucking double move. <laughs> but for the most part, like, I'm not worried about – the big plays on the like through the air on the ground, I could. There's certainly a case for that, um, but I do think, yeah, like your team, your team defense, the strength of the positions goes. Obviously, first is the line, and then second is the linebackers, and then you you know the safeties and the cornerbacks. I do like Branch though; he's good. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I think that with Anzalone and Campbell, with that tandem, I think they'll keep McCaffrey fine. I'm sort of assuming they're going to play the run more than they're going to play the pass, especially if Debo's hurt. But, yeah, I think that... Hmm, I would say the Niners win on a field goal, but I don't think... I, I think this is at least a horrible matchup for the Lions' defense. I'm really interested to see how the Niners' defense looks against the Lions' offense because I think the Lions will definitely be able to score. And I think the Niners' defense has been a little bit underwhelming, like in the playoffs at least. I still am high on them. But I think the Lions' secondary is unfortunately about to get cooked. I think... We might be looking at a Brandon Ayuk 200-yard game because this is one of the best route runners in the NFL. We've seen Cameron Sutton, who's pathetic, unfortunately. I don't know what he's doing, but he can't cover much of anything. So I think Aiden Hutchinson, the pressure's on you. You're a great player, but you need to get to Brock Purdy. Um that's really their only saving grace on defenses. I think Aiden, if they can get pressure on Brock Purdy, they have a chance. But, I mean, I'm not super impressed with the rest of the Lions line. I mean, like, Aiden Hutchinson, he's great. But who else is on the line? Alex Anzalone is good. The secondary is bad. Brian Branch is good. But he's like a, I don't even know what they have him as. Like a slot guy or a rotational safety or whatnot. But... I think the Niners cook on offense. I think the Lions kind of cook on offense, but not as much as the Niners can. I think this is a super interesting matchup, but I think, especially with Debo back, I think the Niners and Brock Purdy, um, assuming that Aiden Hutchinson doesn't have like a career game, I think they kind of cook up 
oh, maybe like a three, 400 yard performance for Brock Purdy, three touchdowns. And I think the Lions are a cornerback and maybe one more pass rusher away from Super Bowl. But yeah, I'm not super high on Jared Goff either. And I've been a little unimpressed with the Niners D line and defense in general. So I think they might not get as much pressure as we're thinking. And Jared Goff, when he's not under pressure, is great. So I think that offense is going to cook a little bit. But uh, give me the 49ers. I have them winning by two touchdowns, maybe 10 points or something. I don't know. But I'd love to see the Lions like make this a super close game, and that'd be awesome if they win. But I think it's just their secondary, and Cam Sutton's maybe the worst cornerback I've seen in the NFL in a, a couple of years back, throwing back to Philip Gaines on the Chiefs or whatever, but I don't know. I hope I hope the Lions defense shows up, but I have the 49ers in this one pretty easily just because of how well-rounded they are. So we all got Niners. Well, you got a Chief, or Lions. Lions by what? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I say lines by five. Okay, and you are. Uh, I'll 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 take Niners. Niners by fourteen. Fourteen. Okay. I I just think they're gonna cook on offense. Unfortunately, unless I Aiden Hutchinson needs to have a three or four sack day, really. Um, so then you have Lions Ravens Super Bowl. So where you yeah. think the Lions yeah. could beat the Ravens? Um. Not sure. I'm not sure. All right. Well, that could be a conversation for another day. And you have Niners, Ravens, Jack, in the Super Bowl? Yeah. Who who would you have winning that? Ravens. I mean, we saw what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I got the Ravens. Just because they're, like, the most well-rounded team we've seen in a while. The 49ers have the better, higher highs, but lower lows. And I think the Niners, or the Ravens are super consistent across the board. So, yeah, I think that. Yeah. All right. Thanks for having me, guys.